three. You start at three, two. Ah, <laughs> tricky. And we're live. How are you, Julie? I'm doing well. How What's are What's happening? We were just talking before this podcast started. You're, you're working on your master's in nonfiction creative, creative yeah, writing. Creative nonfiction, yeah. What is creative nonfiction? How does that work? Um, it's actually very encompassing of a lot of things. Think about like memoir or biography, essays especially. We're a bunch of essayists. Um, we're a bunch of nerds. They pick about, I think, nine or ten of us out of a group of 150 for this program. And then um, we write a ton of essays and we read so much it's insane it's amazing how many female mma fighters not that this is a knock against male mma fighters are like really fucking smart like <laughs> rosie sexton oh yeah you know uh there's like there's a ton of them you can go down the list but... yeah peggy morgan she's got yeah, yeah the really intelligent female fighters i think that um i think there's something with mma and creativity and i think whereas because the opportunities maybe haven't been out there for women as much when it comes to like I guess finding an avenue for that creativity, they're, you know, they go into other things like academics and arts, and then they find MMA, and then they try to do both. I wonder if it's that. I mean, I think there's probably a bunch of reasons. Roxanne Matafari, mm -hmm. that's another one. Super She's smart. super yeah. smart. I, I always wonder if it's like maybe it's such an odd thing, especially when you started. I mean, you're a real pioneer <laughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, you fought Gina Carano in 2007, 10 yeah. years ago, a <laughs> yeah, long time ago. a long time ago. It's crazy when you think about it. Yeah. You know, the, MMA was like non-existent in the public sphere back then. It just wasn't something that people talked about for women. But the women that did get into it and reached like a professional level, you have to be like extremely daring. You, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a crazy occupation. It is. It's, um, and I think that those of us who started back then, of course, I'm not knocking the people who are doing it now because they're tremendous athletes and, the, you know, the women going into it now. But the environment was such that you had to be really obsessive. Mm. And I'm sure that, you know, many other female athletes at this time have that kind of obsessive streak. But I think at that time, because we, I mean, you know, we'd scour the Internet, like the MMA underground, that was, I was always looking for fights. I was always trying to find somebody to find me or the sure dog forums, all that stuff yeah. before it got kind of. Trolley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, it's like always. Oh, who wants to fight me? Who wants to fight me? And somebody say, I want to fight you. You're like, yes, thank you. I'm so, I'm so grateful. It was a weird atmosphere back then. Yeah, it was a well. It was people doing it just for the pure passion of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I got to talk to Jeremy Horn about this. You know, Jeremy, I think has had 150 pro fights, mm -hmm. something crazy like that. And he was like, you have to realize, like back then, we were doing it because we wanted to do it. Yeah. It, it, no one was thinking that this was going to be an avenue for you to be the next Conor McGregor or the next Ronda Rousey. I mean, it didn't exist. No. No, was, my, yeah, my very first fight, um, they videotaped me. It was for Jeff Osborne and Hook and Shoot. And they videotaped me and they said, what do you want to do with this? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be in the UFC. And that was 2004. And, you know, everybody laughed at me and I was like, no, I'm going to be in the UFC. Just watch me. <laughs> I actually can't believe I did, but I mean, I can believe I, that was my goal. That's what, you know, that's what I didn't do well in the UFC, but I got there, <laughs> you know, check that one off. But, um, you know, it wasn't about being that superstar. It was about where you would get to fight, you know, what would you, you would get to do. And I don't know, just getting to fight was such a pleasure. You know, just the absolute, I have a fight, the excitement you would have, like, I have a fight. Oh my God, this is great. That's a crazy feeling to try to explain to someone that has never done anything remotely as dangerous as competing in MMA. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. try to explain that to someone. Like if you were talking to some woman who's a 
doctor or a professor or a just normal job, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, those aren't the most normal jobs. But you know <laughs> uh, what I'm telling. Yeah, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just saying, if you were trying to explain to someone what you want to fight, like you want, you're looking forward to something that's going to make you terribly nervous, you're probably going to want to throw up right before you go out there, you're going to be freaking out, and then finally you're going to be in there doing it. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's difficult to, to explain, I guess maybe ultra marathon runners or somebody of that kind of different sphere of of expression would maybe understand it what you want to run 100 miles in the desert right. or whatever you know i think that there's there's an extremism in a lot of people that um lays pretty dormant but when you get into it when you find an avenue for it and you get to exp- it becomes so addictive and you just want to keep doing it you, you can't stop doing it do you also kind of take comfort in the fact there's just a few of you out there like that because i've been really getting it this is a really strange thing to get obsessed with because I'm not really going to do it, but I'm, I'm obsessed with these people that hike across the country. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? You yeah, know the Appalachian yeah, yeah. Trail? Yeah. I'm having this guy on who has completed the Appalachian Trail, and I'm just, I'm, I'm obsessed with these people. They cut their toothbrushes in half to save weight. Like, they wear one piece of clothing for, like, six months. Like, it's nuts. They bring water filters so they can find creeks and drink out of water. And they these are educated people. College yeah. degrees. And they just want to see if they can walk from Georgia to Maine. I think everybody has that in them to a certain extent where they just have to push themselves in some direction. Although, you know, when it comes to those long hikes, I've also heard from people who have failed at the Appalachian Trail. You know, after a certain point, you're just putting one foot in front of the other. And it yeah. doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. So I think that there's also that, that sense of burnout. But those people with that, that drive to do something... Well, passion, I think, is the perfect word for it, that just want to push beyond what they know into a different sphere. Um, the problem is it does become addictive, and your body or your mind can't always keep up with it. Yeah, and there's a thing that happens to people when they become addicted to things where it, it overwhelms them. It becomes all-consuming. Yeah. You know, So your all-consuming thing is trying to run. You did 100 miles. Now you got to run 200 miles. Like, yeah, exactly. Now, and you have to be faster this time. Yeah, now you got to win. Like, you mm-hmm. know, just, it's it's a strange compulsion to push yourself mm-hmm. to almost like experience yourself it's almost like regular life in its placid vibration is frustrating it's mm-hmm. just it's there's not enough there's not enough tension there's not enough excitement there's not enough uh, you need like ah! well, i mean that's that's how we settled the new world right that's how yeah. like that's i mean that's how mountains are 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 climbed, are summited. That's how we get to space. Is because you just there's something in human nature that's so precious that you just have to keep pushing. Yeah, and it, it's a collective feeling. But then you know there's some individuals out there who just stand a little bit apart or just in a, a maybe a different playground, and they just want to keep pushing and pushing and pushing, and they want to be the ones. And that's that's how we achieve. The thing about MMA though, it's like you have to, I guess, balance that pushing with preserving your physical health, especially yeah. someone who's as smart as you. It's got to be an interesting sort of an act, a balancing act, because you're... Yeah, I... Yeah. Excuse me for talking. No, please, go ahead. I always get all excited and talk. No, um, my body's a wreck now. Like, there's no way I could ever compete in MMA again. What's going on? Oh, my neck is out. Um, I had shoulder surgery in 2012, and something happened with my neck, and it never healed correctly, so... What is it? Do you know? No, I've never... Just feels weird? I hate getting MRIs. Do you? I hate all of that. I I don't like being in a tube like that. It makes me really nervous. So you just... Yeah, so I just deal with it. I mean, just massage and, and stuff. But um, uh, my knees are, are pretty bad. I get sciatica. Like, I, I understand that I don't – I retired kind of young, I guess, but I understood that it was the time I needed to because 
things were not going to function in my body on the level that they needed to. And my mind wasn't in a place where it would push beyond that. Well, you competed professionally for what, 10 years more? Yeah, nine years. Nine um, years? I, yeah. I mean, I was, I've been doing martial arts since I was four. So that's a lot of years. That's a lot of years. <laughs> that's a lot of years. That's 32 years. Um, but, you know, I like actually competing, like I knew that that wasn't giving me, I, I knew it at my last fight, like before I walked out there, I told Greg Jackson, I said, this is it, I'm done. And he was like, okay. Which, and I was like, is he going right to try? Right before and... you went out there. Oh, I was so sick. I yeah. got yeah, I had food poison. It was weird. It was when I fought Betch Gohea. And um um anyway in Australia. <laughs> Is that about Betch? Rolling your <laughs> no, eyes? no, she yeah, a little bit, a little bit. A little no. bit. You know, there's always that you always had that thing where it's like, I won that fight. Come on. Right. You know, throw me a bone. I won that fight and stop wiggling your butt. But you know, she, she does her <laughs> thing. Whatever. She does her thing. She's been very successful with the Betch brand. Um but uh, no, I, I had food poisoning. I don't know. Back then, you know, you were still you were still allowed to do IVs and stuff. So I had IVs, and I thought they worked well. And I think I ate something wrong or something weird. But I woke up the next day. Well, I have a history of a lot of of shitting myself a lot. I don't know during you know fights. That, um, well, yes, that has happened. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm known for: shitting myself in Russia. But oh boy, um, yeah, it was a good one right in front of Putin. Um, really, you shit yourself in front of Putin? Well, okay, I'll I'll backtrack to that story okay. because it's it's my favorite. It's your favorite. It's my MMA story story. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it was my first fight under Greg Jackson. It was in 2007. It was after the Corona fight. And I, um, I'd i met him at that fight. He and Joey Villasenor and Keith Jardine and some of these people, and they were really kind to me. And I had another fight for, in St. Petersburg with Bodog a couple months later, and my corner man couldn't make it. I was in Indiana at the time. Was that the undercard of Fedor and Matt Lindland? Yes. <sighs> yes, yeah. Um, so I... Uh, I called up this nice guy. I didn't know he was famous. All I cared about was women competing in the sport. I didn't care about the guys very much. You know, I liked tough was interesting, but it really didn't do anything for me. I would watch fights if I could, but I couldn't afford paper. Couldn't pace. relate either, yeah, right? Yeah, I was like, well, they're not letting me in that show. But Bodog did, you know, these other shows that were, you know, internet based. And um, I call up this nice guy, Greg Jackson, and I'm just like, hey, uh, would you be interested in cornering me for a fight? And he's like, well, why don't you come here and train? And I was like, oh. One of those. <laughs> and it turned out, no, he's this really nice guy who gave me a job and a place to live when I moved there. But um, no, but um, so I, I drove out to Albuquerque and I was there for three days and I realized I was never going to leave. Like, this is it. This is my team. This is my home. Like, left everything behind me. Wow. Which wasn't maybe very nice to my boyfriend. But, I well, mean, you know, it's they, other boyfriends. Yeah. I mean, it was my fight career. Like, yeah. that, that's what counted. That's where what I where were you about. living? Indiana. Yeah. Mm. Just outside of Indianapolis. Indiana, yeah. Albuquerque's a, like, if you have family, it's not like you're moving to some, like, boulder where you're no. looking at the Rocky Mountains or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are beautiful mountains, but no, it's not It's not a maybe a pleasure destination, right. Albuquerque. Without yeah. the Jackson camp there, it's a little odd. It's an odd. It, it would have been a, a difficult move without the Jackson camp yeah. there, for sure. Yeah, you know, the crack needles everywhere. He's done a great <laughs> job of fostering, like, this amazing sense of community, though. Yeah, yeah, he Him really has. Him and Mike Winkle, John. Yeah, they're, they are tremendous men. Like, I, I feel like I did a lot of great stuff in my life. Like, I'm proud of the things I've done, but I think that I was also surrounded by people who really guided me well, who really, like, you know like going back to school and stuff like that after my career, you know, these are, this is the influences of people who were just like, they care about the people on their team. They care about who they surround themselves with. But I didn't know any of that. I just kind of showed up. And first, you know, I drive to the gym and Greg says, oh, follow me back to my place. And immediately I back into the dumpster at the gym. I'm I'm a total klutz. Um, But no, he came out to Russia with me for that fight. And 
I wanted to impress him because I didn't realize till I was in that gym. I was just like, oh, this is going to be like my sensei. Like this is the this is like I feel like a samurai and this is like the person I want to. I forgot what that relationship is called. This is the person I really want to lead me and guide me. He's my leader. And I wanted to impress him so badly. And that fight, first thing she does right away was uh, against Yulia Berzakovich. First thing she does, punch me in the nose, just shatters my nose, blood everywhere. I was like, great, this is again. And it was right after the Corano fight. So I was like, I was used to losing, which, and you never want to get in that space of being used to losing. But somehow I clicked and, you know, I, I, I did pretty well in the fight and I ended up getting a mounted triangle on her and finishing with strikes. Um, in between rounds, another cornerman put cold water on the back of my neck. And I thought that I just farted. I thought it was a fart, but <laughs> turns out, and this poor girl mounted triangle, no less. That's oh! how I finished the fight. This poor girl, I had no idea of this. Oh my no goodness. Idea. Yeah. So they grab us, they put us on this bus. I'm still in my fight clothes. I still have blood cutting my gloves on. And they just put us on a bus, separate me and Amanda Buckner from our corner men and everything because we'd won our fights. And they take us to this palace. And um, I cannot remember whose palace, Alexander or something like that. It was in St. Petersburg, and it was beautiful, gold damask and silk, and just, I'm in fight clothes. And I'm like, what is that smell? And I was like, I'd seen a guy puking backstage because, you know, because of a headshot. And I was like, I must have, like, rolled in it or stepped in it. I smell so bad. And Jean-Claude Van Damme randomly walks up to us. I mean, it was just like, you know, Fedor's here, Jean-Claude Van Damme, this and that, like just weird and surreal, already head trauma going on with me, like not really in my right mind. Right. And I just, it was so weird to be like smelling myself and being like, God, I stepped in puke. I'm sorry, Mr. Van Damme, like that I smell so badly. That's so crazy too, because you got punched in the nose. So if you smelled it through your nose, yeah, when your bad. nose is fucked up. It was bad. <laughs> Being on the bus and looking around, going, does anybody have any perfume or anything? And other ah. people were allowed to shower, but I was allowed. I was a swing bout, right? So I was right oh. after Fader. So it was just like, put you on a bus. Didn't tell me where I was going. And that's a good way to get staff. No kidding, it was really gross. I've been lucky with staff, but yeah. So we, I, I end up, you know, going to the restroom, looking. There's just shit caked all over, oh. everywhere. And I'm like, how did I shit myself? And I was like, it must have been in between rounds. It's disgusting. It's like there's no trash can. It's like silk and gold in this beautiful palace and stuff. So I just like take my panties off and just like roll them up and shove them behind the toilet. Ah! I know, seriously. <laughs> Black lace thong, Vladimir Putin. That was mine. I want it. I want it back. Wow. No, I don't want it back. It's That's, gross. Oh. And it was, you know, in 2000. It was 10 years ago. That's crap. Wow. Yeah. So and then I just go back out there and it's like Berlusconi was like hitting on me and 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 like trying to pick me up and he's like, hey, can I be your boyfriend tonight? And I'm just like, what? But he's saying it through a translator. So it was so. And I'm like, I smell like shit. Like. Like I was as cleaned up as I could be. I was like, you are a dirty motherfucker. Like, and, and Putin comes, you know, puts his arm around me. And I'm just like, this is weird as hell. And that was it. And I was just like, I shit myself in front of foreign dignitaries in another country. Wow. Like, and that was, that's probably my favorite MMA story. How surreal was it to meet Putin? I, I had no idea at the time, like, what a big deal. But that's usually, I, I stumble into things without knowing which is probably best because I'm a very nervous person. Like I'm a very intense person. And so being there and just having had the fight, I don't know. Like when I think about it, I'm just like, I'm sorry, Donald Trump, but your hookers pissing on you thing. I beat you. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> it's that's, been done and it's been done better. There yeah, you that, are. Yeah, Look at it. that. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. That, that evil, wow. evil man. And I had no idea. You had no idea. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. No idea. But he looked different then. Yeah, I was really blonde. No, he looked oh, different. Oh, he did then look different, too. didn't he? Yeah. 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 Wow. 
that was when he had taken a break from being the dictator, right? Yeah, I think he was prime minister at that yeah. time or something, but then he just went right back into power. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was creepy. So strange. Oh, just being in that like kind of atmosphere and sweatpants and fight clothes. And just, back like, when tap out was still cool. Oh, yeah. Look at you. I loved them. <laughs> they were like, they put me on their show. They, they took such good care of me. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's a good, uh, the tap out story is like a good cautionary tale yeah. for like beating a brand into the ground yeah. to the point where you got to like go up to some people and go, hey man, you can't wear our shit. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny though. It's so weird to, like, yeah, it's so weird to think like branding and all of that. That's a huge like, now I'm becoming so aware of it because I know other writers, that's a really big avenue because mm -hmm. if you think about Donald Trump, I mean, he's become president because of his brand, right? In a and, lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, I'm stealing one of the other writers' ideas right now, so I shouldn't be saying that. But <laughs> yeah, but I mean, really, he's a brand. And that brand was so successful, it convinced a bunch of people that that's what was going to be best for our country. And it was a brand. It was a commercial. <sighs> there's that. But I think there's also a real lack of substantial options. It wasn't like there was yeah. any one compelling person that was next to him. I know. I was such a Bernie fan. I, I really thought that he was outside of the mold. Um, but well, everybody's a politician. I mean, it's, it's he's so a he's the best example, I think, of a guy who really isn't beholden to any special interest mm -hmm. groups. But I think what he offered and what Trump offers as well is that they're outside of the system in some way. Trump appears to be like way more inside the system than he was giving on to be. Mm -hmm. But at least it shakes up this ridiculous. They have this like really cryptic sort of way of doing business and bizarre way of intermingling money and influence and politics and putting it all together and it's just something has got to come along to let people know like hey this system sucks it, really it, does. it doesn't represent us it's foolish it's ancient it was made up back when people used to write with feathers <laughs> right like, we really need a better system i i i agree i i totally agree and you know like this entire election everything about it has pushed me into being like no man i'm a straight-up socialist like and i i used to resist that title i used to say no i'm liberal and i'm this and then mm -hmm. no no i'm a socialist i don't actually even think that i agree with some of the liberal things that have been espoused during all this like i think that we are at a point and evolved people you know in in such a respect that we have to take care of each other and it has to be mandated from a bigger power because we don't take care of each other otherwise now we when you say socialist like in, in what way like, um, how do you define it you know my idea of socialism of course would never fly but it's basically that we all pay into a system that pays us back we all you know we all work for the common man and I know that that's not it, it never works but in my mind, that's the way it should be, that we should all be working for the guy next to us. Well, it would work great if people were like you, if they're hardworking, smart people. Well, I mean, I have student loans out now, so <laughs> not, I don't know that I'm the one. Well, to... there's another discussion <laughs> yeah. totally, but I think student loans are disgusting. I they think are. what they're doing by subsidizing education and making people pay these ridiculous rates, not only that, if you go bankrupt, it doesn't matter. You still have to pay your student loans. You can never mm -hmm. get away from that. No, you can't. It's not a, a single other business venture that you get into, and you would consider investing in your education and possibly your future as some sort of a business venture, mm -hmm. business slash educational adventure. You're not, you owe that money, period. Mm -hmm. You're not getting away from it. No. They'll drag you to the ground. They will. Uh, you know, and I would say that the thing that it does have going for it is the interest rates a little bit better than like credit cards and cars and stuff should like that. It should be zero interest it rate. It should be. I mean, education should be, in my opinion, it should be for every, like people should yes. be educated. It should be 
You I'm know. with you. Yeah. I think it should be free. Yes. I, I hundred and I think it should be available to anyone yes. at any time in your life. I don't think you should be like. 43 years old and you can't go back to school again. I mean, no. I think you should be able to go back to school at any time. It shouldn't just be for 18-year-old people right out of high school. It should be for anybody that really wants to learn and educate themselves. Yeah, I actually think 18-year-old people right out of high school should be taking some time off to actually see the world before yes. they go back into this. Because if you don't choose to approach your education seriously, you're going to have a really hard time. Like, I'm not a fan of rigid systems either. I'm not a fan of like this really regimented, go through four years of high school, go through four years of mm -hmm. college, then you do this, then you get a job. It's thir You're 30, you should have a child. Yeah, now you have a child. Now <laughs> I just don't yeah. buy any of it. I just think it's, there's so many different people out there with so many different dreams and aspirations and interests. We, we, we're, it's so rigid. And when kids see this rigid path in front of them, first of all, it gives them anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's what it used to give me. I used to see people that were get, going to college and getting degrees and getting jobs. I'd get anxious because mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not like them. I, I feel like a loser. I feel like an outcast, you know? And I think that if we made education free and made it more available to people, like, I just don't think, I think that if we could spend the amount of money that we spend on the military, not that we should cut back no. the amount of money, but... That there's got to be that same amount of money or in the neighborhood of that same amount of money that could go towards infrastructure, that could go towards education, that could go towards impoverished communities. There's like zero effort made to build this country back up. Well, I would say, yeah. And looking at the proposals on deck right now, the little that's being used for it, like the NEA and stuff like that, that's being taken off now. I mean, the what? The National Endowment for the Arts, stuff yeah. like that, that gives actual like people and artists who maybe don't fit the mold, but actually have... A, a venture going for them that they, they could be successful with if they got some sort of funding or support. I agree with that, but I've been to the L.A. County Museum of Art, <laughs> that LACMA thing. Jesus Christ, I'll take you there if you want. You'll fucking, you want to throw punches at people. <laughs> they, 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 they have the most ridiculous, like, modern art. Like, this is a video of people playing catch. This is art, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Well, you know... It's all subsidized. I have a very hard time. I actually love modern art if I know what's going on, but if I don't, then I feel <laughs> like I'm, I'm just not getting it and I, I don't understand what's happening but I yeah I, I do think that I think not pushing art on people well, I shouldn't say pushing art but I, I guess providing opportunities for art for people and not just art as in painting or sculpture but I mean like writing and, mm -hmm. and literature and it's the ways I do think that the rigid educational system where you're just like you do this you do this you do this some people's brains just aren't wired that way right. but there are other avenues for them to be creative and to find themselves and like I found with MMA I mean I was pre-law and then my last semester of college, I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to go to law school. I don't want to do this. I want to be a professional fighter. Now, what what compelled you to do that? Because you you had this long history of martial arts. Mm -hmm. You got into martial arts. You said when you're four, five. Yeah, four, four taekwondo. Yeah. And so you had. Uh, when did you first compete? Did you compete in taekwondo tournaments? I did. I did. Um, when I was a teenager, I did a lot of the like the NASCA circuit and the um, international sport, whatever those. I, so point karate. Yeah, I did a lot of point karate. You can tell from my fighting because I was always sticking my chin out. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I did a lot of sport karate, and I was very anxious to be competitive. Um, one of my friends, I went back to the to the final hook and shoot a couple weeks ago, and one of my friends, Daryl Near, used to train with me, and he he was um, he said, "Don't you remember when you were 15 or you were running around the gym just asking people to punch you in the face because they, you weren't allowed to punch in the face in some of these tournaments, and you wanted to know if you could keep fighting." Like, I wanted to know if I could keep fighting if I got punched in the face or so if I was going to quit. So you asked people to hit you yeah. in training so that I, you could see if you could keep going? Yeah. And then I had my nose severely broken where I had to have surgery on it. Um, 
And after that, that's when I decided to be a professional fighter. After the surgery, I should have probably waited. But how yeah. did you get your nose broken initially? Spin, spin hook kick. Oh Jesus! Yeah, it was like over here. Yeah, that's a bad one. Yeah, but I mean, now it's like it's been broken like seven or eight times now. Like I'd love to get it fixed again, but I'm not sure that my student health insurance covers that. So does your see. septum work, or is it? Yeah, I'm mushed not, up not really. It's yeah. mushed up. I can't breathe out of the left side. What so. I found out that was really disturbing was that your ears, like how they calcify and mm-hmm. become cauliflower ear, mm-hmm. your nose does that too. Oh, I can believe that. Yeah, yeah, so the inside of your nose can develop all these hard calcified areas where blood is sort of pooled in. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had to get mine scraped out, Ooh. and they, they cut out, I think they're called the turbinates, these these big lumps in there, and they uh-huh. kind of cut them down to open up the path, and then they shove splints in there and separate oh, and so it. So it, like, it molds it makes around the, there? It makes the hole wider. Oh, that's, I mean, yeah. making the hole wider is not always a good thing, but I would say for a nose, it's probably oh, good. So, yes, <laughs> uh, yes and yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm kind of pervy. Um, yeah. No, that's um. I I would love to have my nose fixed, but it it is kind of helps you breathe, like it helps you sleep if you can oh, breathe. Your like, nose is a big yeah. thing. I mine was fucked up till I was thirty nine, I think, or forty, mm-hmm. and then I finally got it fixed, and I was like, I can't believe I lived like this my whole life, oh, with yeah. a fucked up, stuffed up nose all the time. Do you think clear, more clearly? Now? Oh yeah, yeah I, my I, cardio's better. Yeah. Everything's better. Yeah. Like when, when I didn't, I just was a mouth breather, like literally a mouth breather. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of fighters that are like that. Yeah, like you talk to them, you kind of, you hear that in their voice, mm-hmm. how they have that thing going on with a nasal when yeah, you know, like, oh, you're all clogged up, man. Yeah, I know. It's like, I always wonder what the relationship between fighters and like sinus medication is. Because, oh, a lot. Yeah. I was going to say like, I, I still take it all the time just to, you know, just to be able to function. Otherwise you've just got a The problem is that shit's addictive. Yeah. It is. It's it very is. addictive. Yeah. Like, what is it? Afrin? Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. You're making me think right now. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing that stuff. It 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 makes your no- nostrils dilate and mm-hmm. it opens them up. But when you stop taking it, it all clamps down. Yeah, and even, it feels like even tighter, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Not great. good. Great. Yeah. No, a lot you have of to go to therapy of, for it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of guys stuff that stuff up their nose. Mm. Yeah, the the body's just not meant to take the kind of abuse. You were you were detailing. Your neck is fucked up. Your knees are fucked up. Yeah, my shoulder's still pretty weak. Um, the shoulder I, that you I had don't, fixed. Yeah, yeah I had it, my labrum. It happened in the Tate fight. I think it was tearing before that fight because I always had a lot of shoulder pain. But I've had shoulder pain on both sides a lot. But um, during the Tate fight, I remember throwing a left hook or something and just whoa, what the hell happened? Mm. My labrum was torn all the way through. But I had this weird genetic thing called a Buford complex, which. That's a hilarious name for something, but it's like a thickened tendon, so it was holding my arm up. Ooh. So I didn't know that it was actually torn all the way through. It wasn't like limp, but I do remember like not all of a sudden not being able to base on my left side and being like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" During so, the fight, that's what that was yeah, happening. Oh, yeah, wow. but I mean, so did you get that fixed? Yeah, that's what the surgery was for. But it was it was a really intense surgery. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal because I hear about people going to get their knees scoped and stuff like that, but. I couldn't get out of bed for a week. Like I had to have my my mother had to come take care of me, and I was like, you know, I was 32 years old. I was like, this is embarrassing. But I couldn't actually get out of bed and move, and I ended up having a bad reaction to the medication. And yeah, it was it was a good time. Good time. Surgery stuff. It is, and yeah. the what we're saying that the human body is just not designed for combat sports. It just after yeah. a while, everyone sort of gives out. That's why when you see a guy like Dan Henderson still throwing down it. Mm-hmm. Whatever he was, like 46 years yeah. old. And if you see Dan walk, he walks like he's made out of wood. <laughs> you know, he walks like he's got no flexibility. And then yeah. all of a sudden he's in the cage. He just comes alive. It's it, crazy. There is something about that. Um, 
Greg always called me the Lucille Ball of MMA because he said that I was just the clumsiest person he'd ever met. Like I would just <laughs> fall, like I would trip over every. I fell down all the time. But he said, but when you were fighting, you actually something like he used that phrase came alive. He said you, you would actually move like you were supposed to be moving. So I do think that maybe the human body's not meant to take punishment in combat sports, but. I think we're also built to fight in a lot of ways. I mean, we've been fighting for years. It's it really is like it's cliche, but it is kind of in our DNA to scrap. It is. You just it's not just not in your DNA to do it all the time right. and stay alive. Right. And and to sweat your body down to this certain part and then go here and then, you know, yeah. Let's talk about that because mm-hmm. that is the one of the most disturbing things that's happening lately. Uh, all these fights that are falling apart because people are cutting weight mm-hmm. and cutting so much weight that they're literally on death's door. Mm-hmm. I mean, whack to the Hen and Burrell fight when he was supposed to fight T.J. Dillashaw and he fell asleep like and banged his head off the wall. Yeah. Like, to just a couple of weeks ago, the Habib Nurmagomedov Tony Ferguson fight mm. gets called off, which is one of the biggest fights of the year. Yeah, and for yeah. fans, it's just so disappointing because we were so looking forward to that fight. What do you think could be done about that as a professional? As a professional, well, a former... And as a commentator, yeah. let's, say, let's speak to yeah. you, do commentary for Invicta. You know, and I was also the matchmaker, so I was actually, uh, I, I stepped down from that when I back to, went back to school, so I'm no longer the Invicta matchmaker, but part of my job was I had this really regimented checking the girl's weight twice a day. I should say the fighter's weight, but I'm a girl too, so I can say girl. Um, but, you know, I, I would check their weight twice a day, and I had them text me their weight, and I'd be like, okay, I need to, you to send me a picture of what you're weighing on your scale right now and compare it to this. Like, I was, I was kind of a bitch. But I didn't want fighters missing weight on, on right. my watch. Right. The problem was they were still going to miss weight anyway. It's, it is, there's something archaic about it. It's not, it needs to change. I think more weight classes, you've said that before, I think more weight classes is a really good idea. I feel like every 10 pounds yeah. is more than reasonable. I, I mean, boxing is way better. Yeah, you know, I, there's way more options. Yeah, I think every, every six pounds almost would be, although that's a lot more divisions, but I mean, there's so many yeah. people who want activity. There's so many people who want to fight. I think for women, imp- more importantly, because when you're talking about six pounds, you're talking about a greater percentage of body weight mm-hmm. for a lighter person. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about 10 pounds for a heavyweight, it's like they take a shit, it's 10 pounds. Yeah. You know, there's giant people like Francis Ngannou. Yeah. That guy could probably lose 10 pounds in three minutes yeah. if he wanted to. Just, it's huge. Yeah, there's so much surface area yeah. to sweat from. Yeah. So massive. But when you're talking about Mighty Mouse, 10 pounds is mm. a giant amount of weight. It seems or like you want to yeah. check, you know, yeah. at one fifteen. So yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see her at twenty five. But I'm, I'm really eighty. Is she going to go up? I, you think? I don't know, but I'm hoping. I'm hoping. I hope. They Does she have a hard time to make fifteen? I don't know. I know that she said she's expressed an interest at fighting at one twenty five, which makes me think that one fifteen. Like I don't. I've met her maybe twice, so I've never had a lengthy discussion with her. But she's so badass. I know. I. Every time she fights, I just get so excited. She's so ferocious. Yeah, I know. She's so ferocious. Like, when I watched that uh, fight with her and Jessica Panay again. It's like, good Lord. Yeah. Like, when she smells blood and she starts attacking and smashing with elbows, like, oh, oh. she's one of the scariest people in the sport. I know, and it's beautiful. And you can't it? get her off you. You can't no, get her off you. And she's right at the end of her punches. And her, yeah. yeah. She oh. knows exactly what to do with range. Timing, everything. Yeah. Every, so she's so technical, and she's just so goddamn aggressive, you yeah. know? Oof, technical, aggressive, ferocious. She fucks with their heads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gives really people funny. cookies and shit before yeah. she beats their ass. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. That <laughs> that entertainment side of it was never something I captured myself. Like I didn't have that little niche sort of. But when I see fighters do that, like her, who can be the full package, who can destroy an opponent and make the fans look forward to just watching her walk onto a stage, I love that. I'm just like, Man. Well, that's really who she is. You know, I mean, she's not... 
she's not faking it. It's yeah. really who she is. And when we talk about branding and stuff like that, you kind of wonder who falls into the category of staying who they are as a brand, as a fighter, mm-hmm. or who who creates something for themselves and how much of that is actually authentic or how much they try to pretend. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and when you do fake it, everybody sort of sees that you're faking mm-hmm. it and it comes off gross and they get mad at you. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like, a guy yeah. like Connor, you know, like that famous press conference where Jeremy Stevens calls him out. He goes, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> I love like, that line. Yeah. But this thing yeah. that he has is natural. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is who he is. He yeah. just knows how to do it. And so when he does it, it's effortless. Mm-hmm. But when some people try it, it just looks so goofy. It's just, oh, it, it's worse. People want to see you lose when you do that. It does. It, it does. It, it, it comes as inauthentic, and it's the <coughs> weird demand that we have as fans, because I, I don't consider myself a fighter anymore. I'm a fight fan now. But we have this demand for the fighters to be authentic when they're fighting, but also when they present themselves. They have to be themselves somehow, or yeah. we call them fake, or we call, you know, it's like, it's, it's we have a lot of demands on fighters. Well, you're putting them under this massive microscope. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing someone, when you see two fighters go to war, you're seeing their souls bared out. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you, you see so much in what they're capable of, like how they're, they're capable of focusing, pushing themselves what they've done to discipline themselves to get ready physically. I mean, you mm-hmm. can see that. That You see them express themselves with, with their endurance, like talking about Mighty Mouse again. Like, you see what amount of work that guy's put in in the gym when you see him in the fifth round moving 1,000 miles an hour and not even breathing heavy. Mm-hmm. It's like th- there's expression in that. Like, you're, you're seeing something that this guy is, like, showing you everything he's got. He's show- showing you his full character. Yeah, and he's showing there's that click that happens with some fighters where they're getting beaten down and all of a sudden they turn it around. Mm-hmm. Misha Tate's a great example of that. Like, you know, in her fight with Holly, like, she kicked my ass, too, with the arm bar. You know, it, it, she, she turns it around. Something mm-hmm. happens in there. And you can see that that's the warrior thing that has won actual wars in people where they've you know like i don't know it ma- makes me think of henry v a little bit you know like you know just those moments where we are outnumbered this is gonna suck i'm losing everything's going against me all right here i go yeah. i'm still gonna keep pushing and it's like you know it's like moments like that if you can look at fighting from i guess you don't take fighting personally maybe i don't know how to explain it by taking it personally but if you can invest yourself in those moments of glory for another person, that you get inspired and yeah. you get really turned on to the to the whole sport and just you really understand. You can see the human. Is that easier for you to do now that you've retired than it was to do while you're competing? Did yes. you like compare yourself against those oh, people I, too much? I I'm the most. <coughs> I I'm a terrible person in a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was just. I mean, you know, I I I think mentally I defeated myself more than I ever did physically. Like I, you know, I. But, yeah, I always compared myself against other people, and I was always like, oh, my gosh, this person's doing this, this, this. I'm not getting that. I'm not doing that. I've got to go this direction. And the, um, the pressure, I think, on female fighters, and it wasn't exactly an outright pressure to, to, you know, be sexy or be hot or something like that. You know, I tried that so hard when I first started fighting. Like, I took the nude pictures, and I tried to be the sexy girl, and I just could not pull it off. You could see <laughs> in my face I'm just, like, doofy girl. You know, just, I didn't have that, like um, – I'm a huge fan of sex and sexuality and however people want to express it. It's amazing. But for me, it just had nothing to do with combat. Right. And so the the fighters, the female fighters who could combine that to me, it was just, it was, it, I was befuddled. I was like, how do they do that? How do they put that together like that and still, you know, feel tough or still feel ferocious? Because, I mean, sex is ridiculously fun and sexuality is like, it's 
awesome, but it's also, to me, it's not punching people in the face. And so it was, and I would always compare myself to, oh, I should do that, I should do that, you know, but I can't do that. It's just inauthentic. And I think, I don't know, to me, authenticity is this like weird, huge part of my life that I'm, I'm trying to study with my writing and stuff. But it's, it's, it's funny how um, I would see them just like Karate Hottie, for example. Like she came into the gym, um, into Jackson. Michelle Waters. Yeah, Michelle Waters. Yeah, yeah, Michelle. People don't know. Well, yeah, we call her nuts or peanut, but yeah. That's what you guys <laughs> yeah, call her. Peanut, yeah, because she's so little. Um, but she, um, when she came to the gym, she was this like little Hooters model. I was like, oh, the fuck is this? You know, and, like I almost conned Like, but, and um, then she, I had a black eye when we were sparring the first time, and then she gave me another black eye like right away the first time sparring, just bam, kicked me right in the face, and I was just like, oh. I like her. But I was also like, I had these hangups about it because I was so uncomfortable with that sort of marketing mm-hmm. and that way of presenting yourself. And also women weren't in the UFC then. You know, our opportunities were so weird. And so I would I would question people who would push that side of themselves so much and then not, I'm the fighter woman. I'm going to do this. You know, like it was, the it was Instagram weird. model type yeah, thing exactly. where they're trying to do both. Although it was MySpace then, which is embarrassing uh. to say. <laughs> yeah. But, and, <clears throat> and then um, it's funny because I had this tension with her because I was like, I don't want to market myself in that direction. It's not who I am exactly when it comes to MMA. And then, um, of course, Greg sensed that there was an uncomfortableness between us, and he took us up to the top of a mountain and made us run sprints till we were crying and holding on to each other and became sisters. Like it was just like he was just like, "All oh, that's bullshit. You are sisters. You're training partners. You're here for each other." And it was amazing. It was just like and it, something clicked in my mind where I was just like, "Oh yeah, she can promote herself however the fuck she wants to." Yeah. Well, if she's being she, authentic. Yeah, exactly. She's right. being authentic. That's 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 how she is. That's who she is. She was a model. Like that that was her profession before this. So it 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 made a lot more sense to me when I could step back out of what the boxes that I had placed myself under or the containers, not necessarily boxes because I mm-hmm. feel closed in, but the containers that I was comfortable working within for myself aren't the same for the person next to me. Yeah. And so, you know, it it taught me to have a little bit more respect for people who want to Combine everything the way they want to combine it. Well, I think there's a natural inclination to try to shoot down potential rivals or potential, you know, but like you're looking at people and you're trying to pick apart what yeah. they do. I mean, in a, a lot of ways, when you're a fighter, you have predatory instincts. Right. I mean, you must. When you're sizing up a future opponent, there's there's no way you're not looking at things they do wrong or things that you think you can exploit or maybe... You know, maybe she doesn't work hard enough or maybe mm-hmm. she misses weight because her discipline's off and you start you start looking for holes in their game. Of and course. you're gonna you're gonna do that with a rival in the gym as well. Of course you are. And you know, I wouldn't even go so far to say we were rivals as I was thirty pounds heavier than her, right. so I was just a bully. But <laughs> but you know, the truth of the matter is also because especially the early terrain of women in the sport, when there was another woman who came into the gym, this yeah. could either be your best training partner other or ever, or it could be somebody coming in here, you know, to pick up. You don't know. And I think men look at the gym that way, too. I think that they, they size each other up in the gym with a new partner coming in and stuff like that. Sure. And it, it, it's interesting because it sounds so sexist when I say it. But I'm. it's also, I don't want to lie, sit here and lie to you and say, think that, you know, like, I, when other women would come into the gym, I would be like, yay! You know, that evolved over time. And especially because the atmosphere that Greg created there was incredible. Like, I was the first MMA girl, really, in that gym. And then... You know, and then Michelle was there, and then other people, and now it's like there's a huge women's team over there. Like, what amazing. was it like to be sparring with men when you were the first woman there, to be doing most of your training with men and then going in there and fighting women? Well, there were all sizes, but, you know, I'll be honest, I think training with women is important if you're fighting women. I, I think that there's a different kind of intensity and flexibility um, in body types 
And I, I don't know that that's completely across the board, but I did find it better to have female sparring partners. And I was very fortunate in that Holly Holm was at the gym boxing and she could kickbox and she knew how to sprawl. So, you know, it, she I was still getting sparring with, with women there. And Jody Escabel, uh, she, uh, man, she was fighting at 105. And I remember Keith had me spar her for 10 rounds and she dropped me twice, a 105-er. I have terrible chin. Like I would just say, just boxed like this all the time. But I just well, it, that karate style standing. Oh, there I know. Like that, it's so hard to get out of that I know. style. It's like right? I had a really good jaw. I was rarely knocked out, but it was the jaw that I put in front of people constantly. Mm. Like, I was always like, "Come on, hit me." Did so. you ever think about doing professional boxing? I did. I did. I thought about it, um, especially you know when because there was a quite quite a few female boxers in that gym, and I thought it would be an interesting thing to do, but I just never took that path. I was a I was a pretty decent boxing sparring partner. Like I learned how to imitate, you know, their opponents and stuff. But yeah, I think I was always better in the gym than I actually was in competition. Now, throughout your career, did you worry at all about head trauma? No. Did you worry about the consequences Not of it? Not until after. Not until after. Not until after. Why? Yeah. Why after? Because um, you didn't want to think about it, or yeah, it was you, a conscious and, decision. And I think you have that mentality that <clears throat> you can beat anyone and anything, even your own body, right? So it's like, I'm not going to let that kind of negativity into my life if I get knocked out, whatever. You know, but my last fight, I do remember um, my jaw was out a little bit. I had, like, somebody just adjust my jaw because I kept getting dropped in the sparring for my last fight. And I was just like, oh, this sucks. So you got your jaw adjusted? Yeah, it was like, yeah, I don't know. It, there was a chiropractor on hand, and I don't know how legit it was <coughs> or wasn't legit. He seems like a really nice guy. He was an orthotherapist, and he said, your jaw's offline. And then he, like, did some kind of thing, and I stopped getting dropped, which was nice. But I... Don't, that doesn't really jive. It doesn't. So I don't know how much of that was psychosomatic. Probably and a whole me, bunch. Yeah, and me just thinking, okay, this is what fixes me getting dropped or, or whatever. But I did think towards the end, if I got dropped three times in sparring before the fight with Kohea, and that was in one day, and I was like, okay. This three is times not, in one day? Yeah. And you kept sparring? Well, no, they pulled me out. Like, yeah. You have to stop now. They should have pulled you out, don't you think, after the first? Well, I don't think everybody was. I mean, it's a big sparring room. I don't think people were. They didn't were, know. Yeah, I don't think people yeah. were paying that much attention. I mean, there's a lot going on then. When you got dropped, was it a flash knockdown or did you feel your legs go? Um, Flash knockdown. I, I I don't think I've ever been completely unconscious. Um, I. But you've gone limp and then gotten back up? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and it's the same thing. You don't. You don't recognize your weakness, right? You don't right. recognize that your brain could have problems. You don't recognize, you know. It's right, like, as long as you're walking and moving, exactly. you got to keep it's your like hands you up, chin down. You have to keep down. moving forward. Right. And I think that that mentality, I don't want to, um, I don't want to disrespect that mentality because I think that's also the mentality that makes champions. But if you never became a champion and you went through that, then you kind of wonder, I didn't make great choices with my life, right. you know? Right, right, so. right, right. Now, I think what you're saying rings true to pretty much anybody that follows the sport, like we really admire those Diego Sanchez warriors. Mm -hmm. You know, like pfft, if Diego Sanchez is fighting, I'm watching. Mm -hmm. You know, I wouldn't want my kid to fight the way he fights. Right. You know, Diego fights like a like a goddamn human wolverine. Mm -hmm. You know, he just he's just yeah, a he's beast. Like, just uh, yeah, just so charge intense. forward. You know, I mean and he's been stopped and he's lost, but it's just the the ferocity in which he approaches fighting. It's this it's heart and will and just determination and mm -hmm. it's all together in this this indomitable spirit package, you mm -hmm. know? I mean, it's a very I mean, Diego might not be a world champion and he might not ever win a, a world title, but the amount of fans that, that guy has won just by because yeah. when he's so entertaining, like if what you're trying to see when you're watching two people fight is so, one person try to figure out a way 
to triumph over the obstacle in front of them that is the person, over the, the body that wants to stop, over the lungs that are burning, over the, the legs that are giving out. Do you think that rings true now in entertainment and sports? Do you think that the uh, the UFC or Bellator or whatever show is on, do you think that that's still what people are looking for? Sometimes. Sometimes. I mean, I don't always look for it. Like, I got criticized because people said that the Tyron Woodley, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight wasn't a good fight. I'm like, while that fight was going on, I was on the edge of my seat. Because mm -hmm. at any moment... It could have gotten amazing because at any you moment. you can see the math that they're yeah. doing before their techniques almost. I mean, not consciously doing math, but they, you know, they're they're adjusting to each other every yeah. second of the fight. Yeah. And um, I thought I thought it was fascinating that Wonder Boy was playing this very conservative, stay on the outside thing, and Tyron Woodley, in order to close the distance, he had a risk getting hit, and he got hit a few times. I mean, it was a fascinating fight to me. But people don't want chess matches. They want the last minute of the last round when Tyron connected and Wonder Boy was wobbling and mm -hmm. looked like he was going out. That's what they want. They want slobber knockers. They want Rocky. Yeah, especially people that yeah. don't train. They just they just watch the, the mm -hmm. sport and they just think, you know, oh, I want to see someone get their ass kicked. You know, mm -hmm. they, they don't care that someone is using amazing footwork or that someone has a completely different style than what people are used to. Wonder Boy with that sideways sport, sport karate stance. So difficult to decipher, and he's also so good at timing. And yeah. his, his sliding in and out movement is so good. And his ground is very good too. Yeah. He just he doesn't have to go there that often. Yes, yeah. yes. I just I I'm a fan of the whole thing. I like mm. all of it. I like wars. I like tactical matches. I like a guy like Mighty Mouse who just barely ever gets hit. Yeah. You know, and and I like someone like Diego that comes out biting down on his mouthpiece and. You you know he could be covered in blood. And he just fights harder. Yeah, Diego Sanchez won owns. more third rounds when he got his ass kicked the first two mm -hmm. than uh, like anybody. The Gilbert Melendez fight, oh you know, the Jake Ellenberger. You know, the, the last minute of the fight, he's on Jake Ellenberger's back, punching him in the head. It's crazy. He's just so ferocious. The um, Martin Marvin Campman, same thing. Martin Campman fight. Martin Campman had him like his face was hanging yeah, off. So gross. It was hanging yes. off. And he's still chasing him down the third round. Like, there's nobody more ferocious than that. Yeah. Then, but, you know, and it's the times like that. Like, how can you not admire that? How can you not want to see that or, or find something in yourself that's like that, that will not give up? That if you're at the brink of, I mean, not necessarily death, because it's just an enactment, right, of that fighting. Well, let's be but, real, though. We don't want to, I mean, we're kind of being nice about it, but it is kind of at the brink of death. I mean, Robbie, McDon Robbie uh, Lawler, Rory McDonald, mm -hmm. that was, oh. to me, the brink of death. I mean, you're, you're getting really close. Mm -hmm. Those guys were fucking going to war. And when Rory's nose caved in and blood's pouring out of his mm -hmm. face and he just collapses and he couldn't take it anymore, I mean, how far away from death is that? Is it a couple blocks? Because it's uh, yeah. in the neighborhood. You could see death from there. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. But does that, when you're watching it or when you're analyzing it, do you feel... Does that feel differently than when you first started? I guess watching and analyzing when you see these moments now? Feels bad when it, it, it does bother me when I know them too well. Mm -hmm. You know, when I know them too well and uh, I see them getting. When I see a fight like um, like Rory McDonald, Robbie Lawler, well, I know, okay, whoever wins this fight, neither one of those guys is going to be the same again. Mm -hmm. They gave a part of who they were in that fight. And. You know, Don Fry said that once about his fight with uh, Ken Shamrock. Mm -hmm. He said, whoever won that fight, it doesn't matter because we both lost something. We yeah. both lost who, whoever we were when we went in there. We weren't the same guy when we left. Mm -hmm. You know, that we left something. He goes, I don't know if Ken's going to admit it, but I'll tell you, I lost something mm -hmm. in there. I'm not the same person anymore. Yeah, you know, it's funny. 
it's it, it's so much. I guess I'm, I'm working on so many writing projects right now, and so many things that I'm trying to analyze MMA from such a different perspective now. But if you think about it, what they've sacrificed to that canvas, like what they've given, like all of these fighters, all of these greats, and all these not greats who've still given that part of themselves to that canvas, and you wonder, uh, what's the payback exactly? What what do you get from that? Glory. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Gloria, those it. moments, those moments, and and also this understanding that you are the type of person that can persevere. Mm-hmm. You and know? I mean, we've we've settled uh, uh, the world basically. You know, we've been all over the world. We know we know the world. We know space. We're getting out there. We're figuring those things out. But these are the almost the worlds and the spaces and the glories that, that fight for glory in these strange heterotopic spaces that we create for ourselves so that what's we can, a heterotopic space it's like a uh it's a it's a Foucault thing it's um um I guess well this is like I was I was just going to actually ask you with podcasting and stuff like that it's a space that's other sort of that you create an environment that's other than the norm sort of in mm. a way it's kind of hard for me it's like non-hegemonic okay. I, 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 um but it's I'm, a super I'm, unusual outside the box space. Yeah, a strange it's something environment. Something that's created. Yeah, right. it's kind of a it's kind of a utopia, but it's a it's a, a controlled utopia. Mm-hmm. It's a heterotopia. Like it, it it kind of molds those two ideas. Okay. And like I, I and like I was going to ask you kind of about podcasting and stuff like that because you kind of create one when your voice goes out over the air and when you're doing these things, you're entering into people's heads, you yourself in a way, or your your voices, and it's creating this space that's other where they're connected with you, right? And um, it's just an other space, and mm-hmm. it's and and I think that fighting, and I think the cage is is that as well. I think it's this um, it's this new avenue, it's this new area, and that's where I I feel so troubled when it comes to the commercialization of it all, because I wonder people are still fighting for glory and stuff, but are are they, or are they fighting for the pretty pictures? I don't know. Like, and mm. I I can't ask people. I don't know exactly. Like, I I really want the answers to that. I want to know why people still fight. A good I know question. why I did it. I think everybody has their own different reasons, and sometimes those reasons don't serve you well. Like when Ronda Rousey came back, and when she fought Amanda Nunes, and all the lead-up was all about Ronda Rousey. Yeah. And it was also about her getting back to being the best in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was I was watching all that, and it was like, I'm going to be world champion because fighting is the most important thing. And I was watching, I was like, wow, this all on paper. I mean, I'm keeping my mind open. Um, uh, I'm excited to see that she's in great shape. She's coming back fully mm-hmm. motivated. Not excited that she hasn't made any changes to her camp, but well, let's see what happens. She's got amazing judo, mm-hmm. and she was a world beater for a real reason, but um, all the red flags are there. Yeah. And, all all and the wrong nothing ideas. Nothing about Nunes, right? Nothing exactly. about the actual world champion. Who, exactly. Who, yeah, and it's like, and I, I freaking adore ronda rousey and i mean it's my teammate like holly is the one who night like holly right. dethroned her but i i adore ronda and what she's done and the things that she's done in that mentality that's a diego sanchez mentality here i go but you know? it's not in the way that she's she got used to a very specific thing happening when she fought mm-hmm. was her dominating mm-hmm. and when that didn't happen in that one fight, look, she tried her best against Holly, but mm-hmm. Holly fought the perfect fight, and mm-hmm. fought, Ronda fought the wrong fight. Right, absolutely wrong. The wrong way to fight Holly. Charge yeah. at her. Yeah, with the hook. Yeah. yeah, I and Holly was so ready for that fight. She was she was ready for that fight for years. Like I, I could see that. I could yeah. see in her. I mean, training. she fought perfect. Yeah, I mean, it was literally a flawless performance by yeah, Holly. Yeah. So she loses that fight. She gets devastated and chalks it off to lack of training. Chalks it off to distractions. So this time she's going to do no media. She's going to mm-hmm. do no interviews, no nothing. Just go in there and, and just be bulldog about it. But when you, 
you see like the discussions about this fight and you see uh, people, you know, that were, that were behind the scenes. They were all convinced that she was going to steamroll Amanda Nunes. There was so many people back there. I was like, you guys are out of your fucking mind. I was saying before the Holly fight that Amanda was probably the most dangerous fight for her. Mm -hmm. Because Amanda's really fucking good on the ground. Mm -hmm. And her stand-up is vicious. Like, she's got brutal knockout power. Yeah. And she's yeah. long. Like, she throws these long-ass punches. And she catches you on the end of these punches. I'm like, that's a nightmare for Ronda. Because Ronda likes to stand up and brawl to close the distance. Mm -hmm. And then even if you close the distance with Amanda Nunes, it's no picnic. No. And, you know, Amanda's got actually a very good clinch and a very a very good awareness of where her body yeah. goes. And her, her center of gravity seems to be, She's you're right, she's so long. It seems to be a little bit lower than, you know, I think it would be very hard to launch her on her head. Although Zingano did very well with the yeah. um, belly to belly suplex. That's what that was, right? Well, I, I got to remember that. There's another woman yeah. who's fucking ferocious as hell. Mm -hmm. Kat Zingano. Yeah. <sighs> so much intensity. I remember, you know, I first met her in Colorado. We were on the same fight show. It was when I filmed Tap Out, and I tried to go say hi to her because, oh, another female fighter. You know, we weren't fighting each other, and she just totally... And I was like, oh, what a bitch. Like, uh, and then I got to know her better. And I was just like, she is an amazing person. She's just intense. She is. She is. She had a fight coming up. She didn't want to talk to anybody. She didn't want to have, you know, she yeah. didn't know who I was, who, you know, I didn't know who she was and we weren't going to talk. And then, yeah. And then I just got to absolutely adore her. But, you know, back to Rhonda and all of that, I, I feel like it's interesting. The Diego Sanchez, like kind of the mentality, the, the bite down in the third round. I think you have something there where you push when it's against you. Yeah. And I wonder that something that that knockout interrupted her or you know when holly got her it interrupted her her forward progression and then going back pulling back away from the media and stuff i almost wonder if that in itself was kind of a denial of that interruption and maybe uh, uh, trying to create a space for herself i don't know i'm so obsessed with this idea of creating our own spaces and what we're doing in our own lives because everybody's so different it's very and individual. important yeah and and what she was she was trying to to i guess plot out the way to this fight and to way to this victory against Amanda Nunes and not being distracted and not doing press and stuff like that. And I almost think if she had done the press, and this is just a theory, I don't, I don't know her that well. I think she's a lovely person. But um, if she had done the press, if she had exposed herself to all of that again, if she would have had more of a triumphant attitude because she would have known when you know what it's like to lose and you know that you can still get up the next day and be okay, and, and face the people who you said a million things to, a million confident things to, and, and you're wrong, or you were wrong for a night, and understand that you can actually still get them to see your side. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. I see what you're saying. I see where you're going with it. I don't know. You know, I think there's a bunch of problems technically with how she's preparing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think her work with Edmund made her look really good on the mitts. Mm -hmm. But there's a big difference between looking good on the mitts and having a bunch of different options mm -hmm. tactically mm -hmm. when you're in a fight. And I think a lot of that comes with just long, long sessions in the gym, a lot of experience, and years and years of sparring and fighting. But she was just, go forward, go forward, mm -hmm. attack, go forward, attack. And when she started getting hit, she didn't have any answers. Mm -hmm. She was like throwing up this sort of push away front kick and moving away against Amanda. And she was kind of done from like the first couple of punches landing. And I think that if you look at real seasoned strikers, mm -hmm. you know, like, like a good example would be, ugh, boy, there's a lot of good examples, but you want to get in Jacek 
and uh, her last fight against Karolina Kivalkovich. Mm-hmm. Okay, that that is two very seasoned strikers. Yes. There was a lot of like a lot of feints. There was a lot of different angles. There was a lot of different approaches. It was try one way, that doesn't work. Let's mm-hmm. go over here. That doesn't work. Let's go over here. Now I got something. Let's try that again. Went to the well too many times. Try back to this again. There was there was, it was a communication. It was like mm-hmm. there was a conversation going on. What you're seeing a lot of fighters is they're shouting out one or two words, but they're not articulate, Mm -hmm. meaning their approach is very... If you see someone and they just keep going to the big right hand over the top, big right hand over the top, it's like you're just banking on this one thing, and someone is going to be able to figure out that approach, and it might not be the person that's right in front of you, but someone who's really good is going to find their way through that, and they're going to be able to talk circles around you. I, I, I talk all the time about... When I watch fighting, I try to break it down objectively. I'm saying what it mirrors in a lot of ways is communication. And that really, truly articulate people that have a long, uh, just a long history of using a deep vocabulary are way better off with a nuanced conversation than someone who is just, they might be able to say, get off my lawn. You know, they might be mm-hmm. able to yell out one phrase, but how can they adapt to someone who's passive? How can they adapt to someone who tricks them? How can they adapt to someone who paints them into a corner? Like, can you figure your way out of a trap? Do you understand a trap? And when you see it in fighting, you see people getting set up and you see things happening. Like Anderson, yeah. like Anderson Silva was a master at setting people up mm-hmm. and a master of that, like figuring out the language of what you do. What do you do? Like, what's your thing? Like what you could see him when he was moving with guys, he would stand southpaw, he would switch up, he'd move around, he would give you a little of this and he'd just try to, jam- and then eventually he'd figure out your rhythm and then start dropping shit on mm-hmm. you. And when he did, it was masterful to watch because here's a guy that had figured out whatever rhythm you're on. He'd figured out the symphony of your movements. I think that's he- beautiful. I think yeah. that's beautiful, and I think that describing that uh, as a conversation with another person, it's perfect. It is a dialogue between two people. Yeah. It's a dialogue of, of physicality and strength and stuff like that, but it, it's it, there's a conversation happening there in the cage. And I think when we go back to maybe the aspects of I, I actually think that Ronda Rousey's training might have been a little bit too boxing-oriented. Not that she didn't throw kicks, not that she didn't use her judo, but she didn't prepare for chaos. And I don't know that boxers always prepare for chaos because it's such a a layered, this step, you move your, your foot this way, you move your foot this way, you move your head this way, you respond this way. You know, it's it's so beautiful, but when you see boxers like like Tyson, who could throw that double right, you know, the, the hook to the body and then the, the uppercut and stuff like that, he could prepare for the chaos because he mm. could bring chaos. And I think that in her early fights, she, there was chaos there because she wasn't as sure of herself. It was, ah, I got to get what I need to get. Mm-hmm. And that unsettled fighters. But then when she got more comfortable with hitting the mitts, when she got more comfortable with that moving forward and and having everything laid out for her perfectly, you're going to do this, you're going to spar this person, this is going to happen. Now, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I never trained with her. Of course. I never sparred with her. I, I see what I've been presented by UFC media and commercials and, and stuff I, like and that. And I, yeah. I do as well, as well as people that I know that trained with her that mm-hmm. didn't like the environment Yeah, and thought that it was just a little bit too and, unrealistic. And that's, I think, what maybe the conversation between old school MMA and what's going on in MMA right now with commercialization and it's worldwide. And I, on one hand, I'm so happy for the fighters that they're getting paid more, that, that the opportunities are there, that, you know, they don't have to worry about crappy sponsors, although I'm not a huge Reebok fan, but whatever, it's not my business. Like, but, um, the, um, 
they don't prepare for chaos anymore as much. And chaos was what we thrived on back in the day, right? Mm. We didn't know who we were going to fight. I fought three people, one, three people one night one time. I lost a fight, and then the next day I took a kickboxing fight because I was so mad I lost an MMA fight. Like, there was no regulation, and I could have gotten seriously, like, injured, right? But at the same time, it was that chaos that was so beautiful, like, finding where you are in the chaos and, and finding your own patterns in that and, and preparing for it. And that's, I don't know, that's the old school MMA that I, I miss a little bit. Well, there's definitely something interesting and fascinating about that chaos, but there's also, when you're talking about a professional and when you're mm -hmm. talking about someone who's a world champion in mm -hmm. particular, there's real value in preparation yeah. for an individual opponent. Right. And when you switch up an opponent last minute or something happens, mm -hmm. like when Conor McGregor last minute wasn't facing Rafael Dos Anjos, all of a sudden he was facing Nate Diaz on 11 days notice. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that kind of chaos is a no, completely different animal. I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, I, I might be contradicting myself here, but I don't care. Because also when John Jones rejected the, the fight, the initial, like when Chael was supposed to step mm -hmm. in for him and he said, no, that's not what my team, you know, wants. And he got so much shit for that and the whole event got canceled. But at the same time, it's just like, that's a pretty smart professional move to make. To it, say no. it is and it isn't. You know, I think John also didn't want to re reward Chael Sonnen for all that shit talking. <laughs> yeah. But my thought is John Jones smokes Chael Sonnen if you wake him up at five o'clock in the morning after he's been out drinking. Mm, yeah. I, I just I just don't think they're in the same stratosphere. No, I don't think so either. Um, but I do think that that... Although it was a move that affected a lot of people negatively who were supposed to be on that card and it affected the company negatively, it was a very big power move. And it was also a move towards saying, hey, I'm, I'm more professional than this. You can't do that to me. Yeah, Which I is, agree. But if I was in John's corner, I'd say, listen to me, dude. You're the motherfucker of all <laughs> motherfuckers. Go out there and smash that dude. Well, That's having what you do. been the person who was with the people in his corner, I would say they're going to do things the way they see best for him. Yeah, but, no, yeah. I get it. But it's, yeah. I just and like, that's not that's, Rumble that's, Johnson. No, but that's also you know? the ways, that's also the ways if you're not prepared specifically, like, I, again, I'm going back on what I was saying about the chaos, but you have to train for chaos and you do have to be prepared specifically for opponents. You're very right in that. You have to know what somebody's going to do. That's how Holly was so successful about Ronda. She knew every move that was going to come her way. Right. And I think that when you switch things up on such a level where it was that big of a fight, somebody he'd been preparing for Henderson, it was Henderson, right? Am I, John was fighting Henderson in 157? I, I'm, there were a lot of fights. Who was he fighting? Who, where? I thought who it was. Who had to pull out? Mm. A lot of fights. I don't know. I just, I know Chael came in and it was, it was a quest guy, right? It was supposed to be Dan Henderson, really? I thought so. It was a quest guy. Did Boy. Dan Henderson and Jones ever fight? No. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Henderson. I could be completely mistaken, but. Dan Henderson did fight Daniel Cormier. Remember mm -hmm. that fight? And Daniel just sort of ragged all of them all over the place. I don't know. I don't remember who the hell John was supposed to fight. It just seemed as though those are the moments where a legacy can be very shaken. Now, John's done his own work of shaking, shaking up his own up his legacy. legacy. Yeah, I mean, John just needs someone to talk to. <laughs> I, I think that we all make poor choices, and some people's poor choices are a little bit bigger than other people's poor choices. Well, and there's also wild motherfuckers do wild motherfucker yeah, shit. Like, true. you want some dude who opens up with Shogun with a flying knee when he's 22 years old oh and catches Shogun on the chin. That's John oh, Jones. Yeah. I mean, that, that whole wild man thing mm -hmm. is the reason why he's so goddamn good in the first place, because he has amazing confidence. What makes John special is like the Gustafson fight, a fight that he admittedly was in shitty shape for, mm -hmm. really wasn't training, was partying way too much, wasn't really paying attention, didn't think Gustafson could beat him, and got dragged oh deep into the fifth round, still wound up winning. He didn't fold up. He fought 
I mean, he wound up winning the fifth round. He wound up taking it to him. He pulled that fight out, and it, he made it. A, I mean, look, Gustafson's a bad motherfucker. It's not like Gustafson was a pushover. But John Jones made that fight way harder than it was by not being conditioned, mm-hmm. not being in shape, and still gutted it out and yeah, won. Yeah, he had that. I, I think that that part of him that I hope he returns to that mm-hmm. is all about that, I don't know, those Diego Sanchez moments, like when you yeah. just, it, it becomes your spirit that's fighting there, not just your body that's fighting, but something else has to take over and take the reins. When Vitor popped his arm, and v- oh, Vitor no. had his arm so hyperextended. Was, I thought he was going to tap. I was like, holy I was crap. hoping he was going to tap. I didn't want to see his arm break. <laughs> yeah. you know I mean, it was fucking nasty. And it when was, his toe was half torn off in that other He fight, didn't know about that. Yeah, he just didn't feel it. Like, that's another level. Yeah, he didn't know about that until he was doing the post-fight interview and looked down yeah. and saw his toe. And that he was, was like, so holy gross. shit. And then we got him a stool and he sat down on the stool and he was kind of in shock. Yeah. Yeah, I always called him my little brother at the gym. But I always, yeah, it's been, he's not my, I guess, I haven't been at the gym in a long time. So John is Sad. almost too talented for his own good and surrounded by the wrong kind of people. I think that he does that. Yeah, I think that 100%. he, he it, there's something about him that self-sabotages. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy yeah. to self-sabotage. You know, it's, it's like the pressure of being a John Jones. Mm-hmm. Well, you think about the amount of money that guy missed out on, mm-hmm. you know, and then he's he's coming back in July and he'll most likely be fighting the winner of Daniel Cormier Rumble Johnson, which is in a couple of months, if they could do that in time, because you've, you've got to go May, June, July, maybe. I mean, it really depends on mm-hmm. how this fight goes, but he he still has a chance to pull it off and still has a chance to be the greatest of all time, mm-hmm. but he's fucked up pretty hard. Mm-hmm. I like John though. I, I just think too. John's around the wrong fucking people. He's a good dude. I just think that, um, yeah, I, I think that we all wake up at some point, and I just think his wake up hasn't happened yet. Mm. Like even with maybe with the suspensions and the stuff that he's saying, but I think that he also tried very hard to to brand himself a certain way. That again, authenticity in inauthenticity. You know, like I think that I'm sure that I, I'm not a religious person, so I don't really know how to say if somebody is being super Christian or not being super Christian or being whatever that they, they identify with. Like, right. I, it's not my, that's not my knowledge sphere. But I will say that it didn't seem, the things that he was saying didn't jive with how he was, and it came out, and people hated him for it. They did get mad at that yeah. because he was trying to present this goody-two-shoes image, and meanwhile, he's a wild man. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, the wild man is a respected figure, and well, not maybe yeah. respected, but it's a, it's a vaulted sure. figure in society. Like Donald people, Cowboy Cerrone is uh, a perfect example. He's yeah, 100% Donald. honest sleeve wild man. Yeah, yeah, I love you him. Know? He's, yeah, and a good dude. But, yeah, yeah, a wild man. He has to have those rushes. He has to have that, that danger yeah. coming at him. Yeah, he lives for it. Mm-hmm. He re- genuinely lives for it, and without it, he doesn't feel as, as tuned in. He doesn't feel as alive. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy fucking sport, Julie Kedzie. <laughs> it it's is. crazy. It's so- I want to know, you, okay. I want to know about you. Who were you when you first started all this? Who was I? Yeah, who were you, and are you the know. same person now? I don't like, know. Who were you? Like, That's who deep. was Joe Rogan? Well, it's just like, it's something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about these heterotopic spaces and I'm thinking about authenticity. I'm like, here's a person. I was actually just going to email you these questions. I was like, oh, mm. well, if I come in here, I can plug Invicta. And that would be great because <laughs> I love plugging Invicta. But um, also, but I just, I, I've never really sat down and talked to you. And I guess, who were you when this started and who are you now? Like, are you the same person? Well, I'm not the same person I was six months ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, yeah. I would imagine if you're constantly thinking about things and constantly growing and trying to reevaluate constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was younger. I was 
just a few years removed from martial arts competition and kickboxing mm-hmm. and doing some acting and stuff. And Did you train stand for acting? Up. Did you? So, sort of. I had to take a few acting classes when I got a development deal, but it was because mm-hmm. I already had a television show. And so mm-hmm. they said, hey, you should learn how to act. Mm-hmm. It was really that. It mm-hmm. wasn't that it was something that I trained for. No, I um I was doing stand up and I got a development deal to do a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden I found myself out here. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I was like when I moved out here I was like 25, 6 something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was just trying to figure out what I'm doing. Like why am I acting? Like this is this whole thing is weird, mm-hmm. you know. And then a couple years later I guess uh, I was 97. I was training at Carlson Gracie's place, mm-hmm. and Vitor was 19. And uh, he had just beaten John Hess over in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I was a white belt over there. And uh, Mario Sperry trained there, and Carlos Bajetto, and uh, Marilo Bustamante. I used to watch those guys train. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. And this was back when no one knew who any of those guys were. You know, it was it was really, really interesting. It was really interesting to be a part of that uh, original Carlson Gracie Jim uh, and watch those guys um, work out together and watch everything. And so when um, the UFC needed a post-fight interviewer, mm-hmm. they had uh, they just had con- one of the guys who was one of the producers, Campbell McLaren, was friends with my manager, mm-hmm. and they just casually mentioned it. And they brought it up to me, and they, we had a conference call, and I was like, I'll fucking do that. Like, what mm-hmm. do you want me to do? And so the next thing you knew, I was flying out to Dothan, Alabama on those little propeller planes. I was interviewing Mark Coleman. I was like, this is crazy. Watching Vitor Belfort's debut, um, you know, it was, it was a fascinating time. And to, to catch MMA sort of in its transition from being the spectacle that it once was just four years prior to becoming a legitimate sport. Like Vitor entered the octagon, he had gloves on. You know, Vitor used to fight with shoes on sometimes, yeah. and he got, you, were, you were still allowed to grab clothes back then. Because I remember this guy uh, had, I forget who uh, Valid Ishmael fought, but uh, he literally was grabbing his underwear and his pants and giving him this like intense wedgie mm-hmm. while they were fighting like his cup was snapping and it oh, was totally God. legal yeah yeah you didn't have to have gloves the weight classes were you know it was only two weight classes i think back then mm-hmm. it was real weird it was real it was weird to be there and you know it was, it was interesting and i did it for a couple of years and then it just didn't seem like it was going anywhere. It was MMA was stagnant. It was removed from cable. You could only get it if you had direct TV. Mm-hmm. So I did it for two years, and then I quit and um, went back to doing other stuff and the sitcom I was on and stuff. And then the UFC was purchased by Zufa, and then I became friends with Dana mm-hmm. and went to a few shows. And then next thing you know, he asked me to do commentary. It was one of those weird things where I had zero desire to do it. I just was talking to him. I go, hey, man, do you know about this guy? He's fighting over in Japan. Do you know about this guy, this Russian dude? Do you know about this guy? And, and he'd be like, no, who's, who are these people? He'd write things down and uh-huh. shit. Because I was just balls deep in K1 and right, pride right, and yeah. all that. I was just, I was always a huge, huge fan. And I, my friend Brian from Canada would send me VHS tapes of all these Japanese shows. Mm-hmm. So I would just, I was just a massive fan. The hook and shoot days. I watched all the hook yeah. and shoots, all Jeff Osborne shows. And, uh, you know, and then somewhere around, I guess it was 2002 when I was on Fear Factor, they asked me to do commentary and then I've been doing it ever since. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. But, and now, like, do you ever look at your old stuff? Do you ever consider, like, your mind space then? You mean, like, the old commentary stuff? Yeah, or just even no. think about it. Like, I mean, I try ever... to do my best every time I do it, but honestly, what my contribution is is so, it's, it's, 
I don't want to say it's insignificant, but it's not very important because what it is is just me trying to do the best I can to describe what I see in front of me to make it as entertaining as make it as entertaining as I can, but also honor what's happening. You're a conduit. Yeah. You're, you're the person. Yeah, exactly. You're you're where the flow of information has to come through for the average viewer. Yeah. No, I, I really admire that about you. I'm not trying to suck up, but your enthusiasm is something I really tried to model myself after. Like, I, I, I think that we have, like, I'm nowhere near the level of commentator that you are, but when I hear you get excited about stuff, I'm really happy to hear that because it makes me think, okay, as somebody who's communicating what's happening in this sphere that so many people know about but so many people don't really understand like what's going on if somebody's clenched up or they're, yeah. they're grabbing a bicep here and why that's important why the way this fighter is shifting their hips is so important you know and and it's it's cool to see that kind of enthusiasm so that i guess other people can get excited about something without even knowing they're getting excited like mm. their, their their blood pressure comes up a little bit when they're watching and that's neat it's neat to see that because it seems genuine. It's all 100% genuine. This is the only sport that I really follow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really even understand football. I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like when the, the the whistle blows, like what happened? <laughs> I don't know what happened. And, you know, people make fun of me all the time for that. But I'm like, it's not interesting to me. When I, I Kickboxing, boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, and MMA. Watching all that takes up plenty of time. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for anything else. Yeah, I, I just don't. Mean. And the consequences just aren't the same. I mean, when, when I watch a, a kickboxing match or I watch an MMA fight, the consequences are so extreme that I'm, I'm engaged, I'm captivated. Mm-hmm. And with MMA, you know, when I'm watching it and I'm there live and I'm, I'm cage side and I'm, I'm watching all this stuff go down and I'm not just watching, but I'm also analyzing it. So I'm trying to uh, decipher patterns and I'm, try- I'm data chunking and mm-hmm. trying to figure out what what could possibly happen? What am I seeing? Am I projecting this or am I actually seeing this? And mm-hmm. just trying to be like as empty about it as I can, but also be so enthusiastic about it. And then it's like there's moments like uh, when Darren Elkins beat Mursad Bektik. It's just so hard for me not to cry inside the right. octagon. It was so hard. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. When I was interviewing that dude, like I'll, I'll start welling up right now. When I was interviewing him after that fight. I was like, that guy just emptied out. I mean, emptied out his whole soul. I mean, he took a fucking beating for two and a half rounds and didn't give up an inch. There was nothing. There was no quit in him. Mm-hmm. None. Zero. And then finally, in the third round, he catches that guy. And there's this fucking roar that he did after that fight was stopped Mm -hmm. where he throws his arm back and he's moving around the cage and screaming. He's covered in blood, like Mm -hmm. right there. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the purest human moments you can ever see, isn't it? Like, like I, yeah. You have to wipe tears off my eyes right now. No, I completely, I, I totally understand that. Like, it's amazing. It's amazing to, I guess, to see your passion for that and to see you are able to witness that and you're still able to translate that kind of passion to people. Like, that's well, cool. if it stops being that to me, I'm mm-hmm. going to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. But that was just the last fight. I mean, it doesn't, it just, not only is it not stopped, there's no, like when the fights are going on, there's no waning whatsoever in my enthusiasm. It's mm-hmm. not, it hasn't, it hasn't dissipated. And people think like, oh, he's kind of half in now because he doesn't do all the events like that. That can be further from the truth. I just don't want to travel. No, and also you're going to you're gonna wear yourself down to a certain point where it's just yeah. like you're going to be too sick to actually be able to experience what you need to experience for the viewer 
to feel what's going on. It's also like, I have too many interests. Yeah. I do too many. I, I I like to do too many things. Yeah. I just I just I'm trying to do. I'm trying to live five lives. You know. I mean, you, if you have the opportunity to, why not? Yeah, but that's it does. It does. It does wear you thin a little bit. Did you Did you have that kind of passionate connection with comedy? Like when when you're doing stand up and when you're when you're in that kind of engagement, do you feel that flow where you're just almost to the point of emotion and you want to cry? Or you no, wanna... not like that. That's different because it's life or death. Like that mm-hmm. Darren Elkins fight was life or death. Mm-hmm. It was. Uh, it's a different thing. It's not. It's like comedy is fun. It's like joyful. Mm-hmm. It's silly. It's important in that I know that people come out to see me and they pay money and I want to do my best. Mm-hmm. It's important that I'm trying to constantly. Improve. What I do is I, I dump all my material out every two years. So mm-hmm. I, I write a special, I perform it, I get it tight, and then I, I record it, I put it on whatever, on Netflix or whatever, and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. And, then I'm, and then I have to write a whole new one. And that process is a long and painful process. Mm-hmm. Like, I did my Netflix special in November. It came out in November, so it's been December, January, February, March. We're four months in now, so it's like on, like, fawn legs Uh it's like it's just sort of like trotting along now it's not really like a cult you know it's not really like fully formed Mm -hmm. yet but it'll get fully formed and then once it gets hardened and once i know that it's ready to rock like i could smash for an hour then i chuck it out Mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of intensity in that regard but it's a different kind of intensity like the the kind of it's a fun intensity there's there's emotions like there's, you know, jokes that don't go well and it's painful and I don't enjoy that. But mm-hmm. I also know that that's where the growth comes from. Like those shitty sets or with like some of my biggest leaps have come from post sets where it wasn't good. And then I sort of reengaged and reconnected and got more fired up. And as soon as that stops being important to me, I'll stop doing that too. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have the same feeling that fighting has. Fighting is, has this unique, unique moment, this unique thing to it like that. Darren Elkins fight mm-hmm. where it's like man there's not a whole lot of things like that in the world that you can witness mm-hmm. where that are that fucking intense and that I have the honor to try to do service to to try to I would say fighting is one of the few arts or sports or however you want to phrase it experiences in the world where the stakes are immediately high Yes. They're, they're laid out there. The stakes are high. You Win or lose isn't just win or lose to a fighter. And it's not win or lose to a fan, although you can step back and say that or you can say, well, I'm just watching this for energy. But you get invested. Yeah. You get so invested in it. I think that's I was kind of a lousy matchmaker in that sense that I, I cared about the girls too much. I really did, and I was just like, I didn't want anybody to lose ever. Oof. And I was just like, you know, so, I was. A, and also, has I, to lose. I was terrible with the math and the organ. I'm just, I'm a very, I, very hyperactive like not when i'm in the zone i can pay attention really well but when i'm not it's i'm my mind is everywhere and i can't really focus and i wasn't i wasn't great in that respect um but man when you see something come together though when you see the fight actually happen and it does matter who wins or who loses but it also doesn't what matters is just watching that physical engagement and these people perform and they're not performing but they are performing yes it's I don't know. It's incredible. Yeah, it is an art. You know, like when Meryl Streep was saying that yeah. MMA <laughs> is not the arts. Well, listen, it's not painting, but guess what? It's art. It's you on might... a damn canvas. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> it really is. Like, it is. I mean, yeah. it's it's a contained Literally. canvas that this is the, these actions are being performed. It's yeah. art. It yeah. just, it may not be what we identify as art, but neither is the person 
in, in the modern art with the TV or whatever you were talking about earlier. Like, well, yeah, when, like, when you see a fight like Misha Tate versus Holly Holm, mm-hmm. when Misha Tate takes Holly Holm down in the fifth round, locks that choke in, and Holly doesn't even tap, she's mm-hmm. throwing punches in the air as she goes unconscious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's people on the outside that would look at that and go, oh, that's just barbaric and it's just violent. But you see... Misha Tate getting that belt strapped around her waist mm-hmm. and her reaction. Oh my gosh! The, the her whole life she was the strike force champion. And Rousey no. came. Yeah, UFC oh. bantamweight champion of the world. Yeah, and she, she was climbed. She summited the highest mountain that she could summit in that time. Like, that was art. Yeah, that was art. Yeah. The way I describe MMA, my my definition is it's high level problem solving with dire physical consequences, mm-hmm. and that's really what it is. But it's also done. And, and like especially when you watch Anderson fight in his prime, it was beautiful. Mm, it was beautiful yeah. to watch. Like there was aesthetics involved that were undeniably artistic. It was just well, there's there something was going on. One fight, and I can't recall it right now, where he mimicked all of these different styles, and like he did a, a capoeira move, and then he did this, and he mm-hmm. did that, like all in one fight. Like he was monkeying around. I should, I don't mean that in. I guess that sounds racist. I don't mean that. I mean in, in the playful sense. <laughs> Isn't that what a ridiculous world we live in? I, you can't say monkey in a round if it's a black guy. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I I want to respect if something that I say offends somebody. Nah, I want to respect their angle of offense. No, you didn't mean anything. I didn't. But, I, but in it's the supposed sense to that, convey intent. Yeah, and and when when he's playing around right. like that, I guess when he's when he's mimicking other things, and you're just like, this is a fight, and mm-hmm. you're able to just play a completely different game. Than well, the other he, it was also part of his strategy, and that's what what sort of turned against him in the Chris Weidman fight mm-hmm, yeah. because of that playing around sort of it was to, to mock your danger mm-hmm. you know like then, by, was, I'm sorry I keep okay. talking over you no please go ahead well then Nick Diaz did it back to him when he laid down that was down. the best I loved that that, that was, was one of my favorite moments in any fight it wasn't even anybody getting hit Nick lays down he puts his hands together I know he was like he did <laughs> Anderson to Anderson he played like he, yeah. he played he played the game and it was like amazing Nick is incredible when Nick starts talking shit to you I think Frank Shamrock said it best he's like you can't believe it's happening mm-hmm. you're like I can't believe this guy's beating my ass and he's talking shit to me <laughs> while know, he's doing right? it right <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, I remember when he fought Robbie Lawler mm-hmm. and he was just constantly talking shit to him while he was fighting. You could see, like, Robbie was like, what is going on here? Like, it fucks with their heads. It, it does, fucks with people's heads. It's the complete, like... <laughs> <laughs> That's the Betch Oh, Cohea. my God, I know, right? <laughs> oh, Betch. Uh, yeah, no, but it's the complete, like... <laughs> <laughs> he's lying down with his head by oh his head. I think he's chilling. That was I incredible. I mean, come on. That's one of the funniest moments in the history of fighting. It is. Those are the moments when you're just like, this is somebody who doesn't give a fuck. Well, he was also trying to get Anderson to engage. Mm-hmm. And Anderson, the whole thing with Anderson was counter-striking. Mm-hmm. Patrick Cote sort of exposed that in a lot of ways because Patrick Cote didn't lead. He just waited on Anderson. And Anderson was like, I don't like this. No, you know? yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, counter-strikers, um, they have their own, I guess, their own methodology with being able to read what's happening. And if yeah. somebody doesn't initiate, there's a lot of waiting. Yeah. And waiting is... You know, it makes the fans hate you and it makes you hate yourself because you get more frustrated and your, yeah. your, your emotions get more intense, right? Yeah, it's especially when you get to a fight like Wonderboy Thompson versus mm-hmm. Tyron Woodley where you see this waiting thing and it's just going on and on and on and, you know, five rounds and you're like, get to the yeah. fucking fight. <laughs> it's not fan friendly, right? Yeah. But for the fighters, any wrong move at that point in that waiting game is mm-hmm. like that could be death. Yes. Or, you know. Well, loss. Loss. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. For sure. Um, what excites you 
now that you're not fighting? Like, what what excites you about the sport? Oh, the sport, it's the stories. I'm a sucker for the stories. The whole reason I went back to school is I was reading some of those long-form essays the MMA writers were doing. And I was like, you know, and I was doing the matchmaking. I was doing okay at it. I was doing the commentary, but I was like, I'm just not reaching that thing that I was reaching when I was fighting. Something about me is not being expressed. So I, I took a class, a writing class, wrote an essay, and um, it got me into school. And I was like, and I mean, Iowa, I mean, it's like one of the best schools for writing. Iowa does two things well, wrestling and writing. And so really? to get in there, yeah, was I was just so... And I feel alive now. Like I feel like I'm I'm back where I'm back to being the Julie I need to be. Mm. Like where I'm hungry for something again, and it's words and stories. And I think that MMA is the perfect, I don't know, avenue for all of these stories because, you know, everybody. At first, in old interviews, people would just say whatever the fuck they wanted to say, and they do whatever the fuck they want to do. And then everybody got savvy to this the media, right? And they're just like, I'm only going to reveal this. I'm only going to reveal this. Right. And other people played on that, and they're like, I'm going to give more information. I'm going to give sound bites. And so I think that when it comes to communication and words in MMA and, and what fighters are giving, um, there's a lot about what's not being said that can really be explored. And I'd really like to know what that is. I want to know what makes a fighter, not what makes a fighter decide to fight, but what makes a fighter decide to wake up the next day after a fight? I, I you know. Decide to wake up? When yeah. You... I mean, it's so emotional. It's so crazy. And, and fighters are such insane people that after a loss, I'm surprised, actually, there aren't more suicides and stuff like that in the sport. And I don't mean to get more oh, super serious, but people take it to such a high level. And, and with the amount of, of pain that they invest in themselves and the amount of emotion towards it. When fighters decide, I lost this fight and I lost this fight, but I'm going to get back in, I'm going to do it again. Like, if they decide, they make the conscious choice to stay, not necessarily, I don't know if it's living in the sense of biologically living or just living in that space still of wanting to be a fighter, of wanting to do that. Some people, oh, it's all I know. All I know, all I've ever known is fighting. So when the fighting is over, what do you do? What do they do? You know, I was, I was just talking to Uriah Faber about that, that I think that he's a real good role model to young fighters because he's as enthusiastic as about his post-fight career. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like, hey, this is a new chapter in my life, and I'm excited. I'm mm -hmm. excited to do different things now. I went out with a win, you know, and I love the fact that he did that. He fought in Sacramento in his hometown against a tough guy in Brad Pickett. Beats Brad, and he's like, I'm going to go out with a win, and I'm on to the next chapter. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much. And he gets this giant round of applause, and good for him. Yeah, he came from a place of, um, I guess, of, oh, I think privilege is the wrong word because he built what he built. Mm -hmm. So it's not privilege, but maybe he came from a place of being able to see a bigger picture. But then you right. think about maybe the Joe Frazier's of the sport, or the mm -hmm. people like that, when they stopped fighting, what, you know, he, he built a gym, he did this, he did that. But, like, what, I don't know. Fighter stories, to me, are incredible. The reasons that people fight and the reasons that commentators commentate. The reasons that people are still so emotionally invested in this sport and what those stories are and what keeps people going. Mm. I love that. I think that there's something to the creation we have built. I mean, the Fertitas and Dana built, like the UFC. But, I mean, we as fighters, as a fighter community, as an MMA community, have built something incredible. And And... I am interested in why we still want to occupy this space or what makes people want to leave it but then come back. Mm. And maybe that's just my own personal journey because I can't get out of it. I can't. I, I, I can't quit MMA. It has well, been the greatest love Well, you used to life at affair. 10. You know, you, yeah. you, I mean, the yeah. life going down to level four, it's like it, yeah. you, you can't mimic the intensity. You can't. And I'm finding in words and in, in communication, I'm finding something there. I'm finding that I can, I can access this again. It's harder for me. 
because I have to use my brain more. But <laughs> I can't just go in there kicking and punching. Like I have to like sit and think about things. I have to formulate these questions for life that I've never even thought about. But you got to love the questions, like Rilke said. You know what I mean? It's just the questions are what, what's important, not even the answers. It's just finding the right questions to ask and going through that. And I've really rediscovered a love for this sport by stepping away from it. Um, every commentary job that I do now, every time I'm in there for Invicta, I'm just, this is amazing. And, and finding that enthusiasm, again, is, is, it's great. I didn't have that towards the end of my fight career. I was in the UFC because that was the dream. I had to be in the UFC. Why doesn't Invicta have ring card boys? Um, Shannon thinks that's kind of disrespectful. To boys? I no, I think that she makes it more of a spectacle. So but plus these are employees. Girls? Yo, no, I think it's a spectacle for girls too. I, I have my own opinions about all of that, like the male gaze and MMA and stuff like that. Like, but the male gaze. Yeah, I the love male that gaze. Expression. Yeah. Well, it's just it's. I mean, we are formulated to see things. I mean, ring card girls are tradition that have come over from boxing and stuff like that, and it's never been questioned. Mm -hmm. Why? You know, like why do we still have this? I mean, we can put up the ring number. Right. On a, a jumbotron. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want these women to lose their jobs. I mean, right. they're they're part of the brand and the promotional aspect of it. But and the ring card girls for Invicta, we call them the Phoenix girls, and they're actually, I mean, Natasha Kingsbury is like a professional runner. Like, I mean, they're they're serious, high level. Like, they're you know. She used to be ring card girl for the UFC. Yeah, she she's did. awesome. Yeah, she's so great. She's very yoga minded. And her and husband's very, yeah. awesome too. He's I love really Kyle. cool. He's really cool. Yeah. So, um, but no, I I think that Shannon doesn't want that. I guess. That spectacleness, although I would I would argue that the ring girls are a spectacle, in, in that self. But I don't. I really like I really like them. Like the girls that work for us, the women who work for us. I think but they're it is really odd, cool. isn't it? That there's like female ring card girls and an all female. Like, what if we had ring card boys in the UFC for all the men fights? It would be really weird if guys are walking around with speedos with. High top Reeboks on. I mean, on. if it was, <laughs> if we think about seeing that for the first time, if you uh, visually picture that right now, because we're not used to it, yeah, it would be weird. But I mean, if it was the norm, then I don't think it would be that weird. I think in bodybuilder dudes, do you remember King of the Cage when they had that guy who was the king of the cage, <laughs> yes. who was this gigantic, <laughs> roided up dude. bodybuilder dude who wasn't even fighting, but he was no, just he was the king of the, the cage. king of the cage. It didn't make any sense. It was like, what is happening here? What is this supposed to represent? Um, it kind of goes back to branding and like the weird yeah. ways we do that, like how we present ourselves to the world or what we're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's just the ring card girl thing is an odd thing. It's and it's weird when you have an all-female organization, mm -hmm. all-female fighters, but yet you still have girls holding up the cards. Mm -hmm. I think you should go with dudes. Well, I'll, I'll bring that up, but I'm pretty sure Shannon wouldn't be on board with that. Sage Northcutt-looking young oh fellas. Oh, uh, Young and trim. Now, see, and the thing is, though, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, though, we think about <sighs> combat has been so sexualized and stuff like that. It wouldn't be out of the norm. No. But at the same time, what it, even talking about it, we laugh, right? Because it shocks our sensibilities a little. It's like, we're not used to that. That's right. weird. So it's, I mean, what, what did you think about females when they first started fighting MMA? I mean, what did you think about female fighting? Like, Well, I, I had a chance to watch Tough Enough in Vegas. I mm -hmm. don't remember the event, but Nick the Goat Thompson was on the card. Mm -hmm. And there was this uh, undercard fight between these two women. And these gals went to war. Mm -hmm. And we were in the front row. And it was just chaos. I wish I could remember who was fighting. But it was such a wild and crazy fight that at the end of the fight, everyone in the arena was just standing up, screaming and cheering and clapping. And I was with Eddie Bravo, and we were both like, dude, I'm a fan of women fighting now. Mm -hmm. I love it. You but know, were it you just... not before? Like, what was that just you had to see them actually in action doing... I guess being on that level, or did you just, it just wasn't on your on your radar before that? There wasn't enough of it to really compare. Mm -hmm. Like, you had to see it 
you know, you have it has to be presented to you. Now I'm obviously a huge fan of it, mm-hmm. but you have to see it. It's like we were we weren't really exposed to it because right. it wasn't yeah. in the UFC. So you'd have to go out and seek it. And this is you know pre Strike Force, so it just wasn't something that people were were aware of. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like you know when you first started fighting and you're talking about trying to get a fight, it just wasn't that prevalent. Right? Yeah. No, I think that it, it wasn't. I mean. It, women didn't even know they could fight yeah you know at, at a certain time so it's like shifting the attention to that when you can actually watch these dudes who are fighting you know you don't have to think of that on your radar you don't have to seek that out if you're actually seeing fights unless it's given to you or unless it's presented to you you know then why you know why would it be on the radar well, why would was, you think of it women fighting was also in my mind connected to a certain sense of frustration for the athletes mm-hmm that they had, like, Lucia Riker could never get oh, yeah. Christy Martin to fight her. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always that thing. Like, I had always known Lucia Riker was, like, the best women boxer, mm-hmm. and everybody kind of knew, but she couldn't get that fight, like, where everybody would know mm-hmm. how good she was. And then everybody's like, oh, Christy Martin's the best female boxer. I'm like, God damn it, no, she's not. Like, you gotta, she's got to fight this woman mm-hmm. from Holland. You know, and then it sort of never happened. And then, you know, there was Mia St. John, who was more like a girl's a good boxer and she was cute and she was really working that angle mm-hmm. and then there's Layla Ali of course mm-hmm. who was Muhammad Ali's daughter but there was no one who caught fire mm-hmm. there was no one there was no like oh my god this girl's going to fight this fight this is going to make like what we have now mm-hmm. like what we have now in MMA is incredibly unique you know like Valentina Shevchenko and Amanda Nunes yeah. that is just two super high level MMA fighters who happen to be women mm-hmm. who have worked their way up the ladder Amanda Nunes is obviously the champion Valentina though is just knocking on that fucking door and that is an exciting dynamic matchup for the women's bantamweight title that didn't exist in boxing right. there was never that sort of matchup build up thing and by the way there's other people waiting past Valentina you know there's there's there's, there's contenders it's real mm-hmm. and there's contenders at strawweight as well it's real mm-hmm. and so i think that there was always this sort of thing that was connected with women fighting like that it wasn't legit that it was kind of like the WNBA is mm-hmm. as, as good as as an athlete as some of those players are no one gives a fuck mm-hmm. in this country it just mm-hmm. doesn't catch on you know i'm sure they give a fuck and they're probably mad that i'm saying that but you, well, you know what i'm saying it's I, I know what you mean marketing caught. wise for some for whatever reason it wasn't seen as it's not seen as an equal sphere to the nba right and what's been unique about female fighters in in MMA is that because they can share the same octagon on the same night because they're in the same playing yes. field then there's a there's a chance to see more of an equal setting 100% um, yeah i think that's hugely important mm-hmm. i mean when you have someone like Ronda Rousey who's headlining a massive card and the pay-per-view sells 1.5 million buys mm-hmm. that is gigantic for women's combat sport for combat sports in general yeah. and it's unprecedented anybody who says it's not is crazy there before Ronda Rousey came along there had never been an athlete like that that had been dominating in a combat sport in on a worldwide scale where everybody knew who she was it's, it's totally uncharted territory yeah, she was she was the mainstream appeal of it somehow with what she presented well she's an incredible person but for with what she presented she she had the the package that that transcended oh this is a female fighter it was ronda rousey is a fighter and of course they focused on her femininity they focused on her being a female but at the same time, I mean, she was doing way better than the men when it came to universal appeal and stuff like that. Like, there was something yes. that she crossed. Well, she was yeah. a unique thing. Like, yeah. What is this unique thing? Yeah. And I think that that just did not exist. I mean, Gina Carano sort of caught it a little bit. 
but she was gone before it really caught fire, mm-hmm. you know. And then when she lost to Cyborg, there was a, a there was a lot of like weird feelings about that because there's all these speculations that Cyborg was on drugs, and then they looked at Gina Carano and she was all beat up afterwards, and that left this sort of weird taste in people's eyes. I I, I understand mouth, that, rather. and I think that um, taste when, in their eyes, <laughs> their eyes were tasty. Um, no, I th- I think that there's something to that. I think um, it's unfortunate because I'm. Like, I know Chris Cyborg, you know, I was the matchmaker, you know, with Invicta when she was fighting for us. And I I was there for her weight cuts and I saw some of her struggles and and what a kind, kind person she is. Just a genuinely kind person. But then there's this persona of toughness and her saying this kind of thing to Rhonda or she's saying this Mm -hmm. to Gina and then they're saying it back. And it's this, that, you know, and it's just like for some reason, um, I never thought she got the... um, the respect that was due, but at the same time, then she did fail a drug test. So it was like, ah, uh, like, unfortunately, well, you carry the burden of having your entire legacy be questioned when you mess up like that. But we know what the human body looks like. You know, you know what a female body looks like, and you know what someone looks like when they most likely have been introducing male hormones into a female body. I don't I you know I I understand what you're saying because we know what we think is normal or what you know what a female body is like but I would say that uh, we know what a male body looks like too yeah and we without know hormones some dudes, and we yeah and yeah. I mean you look at somebody who's like perfect physique Sage Northcutt mm-hmm. I mean is is everybody speculating that he's on steroids well, because he looks a certain way because I, I I met the kid when he was a kid and he looked like that the problem with that line of thinking is that he's a male Right. And that he has natural testosterone and that you can accentuate natural testosterone pretty significantly, especially if you're someone like a Kevin Randleman. Right. Or, you know, like a Marvin Eastman, who just has mm-hmm. this extreme mesomorphic build. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are built that way that don't do anything illegal. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of women that are. Yeah. I, you know, I, I again, I, when we do the eye test like that, like I, I completely understand that. My, um, I guess I wanted to believe of course. That I wanted to believe that Cyborg was drug-free, and now I believe that she is. I believe that she's not. Currently. Yeah, I believe that she's, whatever happened in that time, mm-hmm. in 2011, she has rectified it. She's passed all of her, dr- I guess something happened. I, I'm not really, because it was with the UFC with some kind of test, but it turned out it was with her birth control pills or something. What, more recently? It. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, something happened with her birth control, or no. something, something happened there, but... No, it's spironolactone. Spironolactone. And which is a DHT inhibitor, a dihydrotestosterone inhibitor mm-hmm. that is used for a bunch of different reasons. It's used as a um, it's used as a diuretic. It's used for people combating the effects of uh, anabolic steroids for mm-hmm. females combating the effect. It's used for cysts. It's oh, used that's for a, right. a yeah. bunch of bunch of different possible reasons to use it. Okay. I think, yeah, because I, I think I've known somebody who's been on that for cystic acne before. Mm-hmm. So I understand. I don't understand what happened in all of that. And I would love to, I need to read about it. I, I'd love to know more about it. It wasn't my in my sphere of interest exactly right. then. But, you know, pre-2011 drug test, I wanted to believe she was natural because I wanted to believe in her and believe that somebody could be that vicious and ferocious and wonderful like that and take a, take the idea of women fighting to a different level. Mm-hmm. And when she tested positive for, for the, um, it was a, di- Steroids. St- stands, yes, stands something I, in 2011. So whatever. Like yeah. And then, you know, and then I was just, I was heartbroken because first of all, you know, it was just like, there was this, I, I didn't believe anymore. And then I got, I got to meet her actually in professional setting and I got to, to know her as a person. And you realize that when you know people, it's a lot more nuanced. And I believe in you as a person and not, you know, you know what I mean? Well, like, I've believed in a lot yeah. of guys that turned out to be taking steroids. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's weird to associate, I guess I, 
never. Well, you're a nice person. You're kind. Well, you you wish for the best. I I do, but I also wish for the best for women all the time, and mm-hmm. that we're not gonna mess up. Right, and but if you do wish for the best up. for yeah. women, wouldn't you definitely want to take a hard stance against someone who's Absolutely. introducing male hormones into a female body? And that you know, also the problem with that is a lot of the effects are permanent. Mm-hmm. Like the, a lot of the effects of a woman altering her physiology with male hormones, there's a certain amount of those effects. And this is also argued against men taking steroids. There's a certain amount, and there's been tests about this. This isn't just speculation. That certain amount of physiological changes are permanent mm-hmm. when you take steroids because you're introducing these hyper human levels of testosterone to a male system and things change bone density changes right. the shape of your body changes the, the the tendon strength changes right and your your testicles shrink and certainly because you you don't have the ability to mm-hmm. like pr- yeah produce but th- this see that of... pro- that comes back like the the, the testicular atrophy it's mm-hmm. like it's really the shutdown of the endocrine system but that mm-hmm. comes back and when it comes back there's a certain amount of the improvements that you've received because of those steroids that you will keep forever oh, really so yes. even when you're in that exactly. like post steroid area okay. yes which is one of the things that infuriates people that have been clean their whole life is that someone can test positive and then they continue on their career even if they are not taking steroids now they have a a benefit they have a permanent Mm -hmm. benefit of taking those illegal drugs Mm -hmm. that sucks yes yeah i I mean it's i mean there's nothing like i can say like that would champion that being a good thing it's not a good thing but i I will say that like she did not test positive the entire you know since 2011 Mm -hmm. and so if there was that advantage in something like that we saw somebody like urena bear um in kickboxing still work against that and still find victory right so i i I don't know. But should someone have to work against that? First of all, the Jarena Barge fight was a testament to Cyborg's courage and, yes. and fighting spirit that she took that fight because nobody wanted to fight Jarena for a long mm-hmm. time. And if you don't know who Jarena Barge is, if you watch her Muay Thai fight, she's some ungodly number of fights she's had. She's a multiple time world champion and she's just so stunningly technical as a mm-hmm. fighter. But, you know, you look at them physically, they, they look very, very different. Mm-hmm. You know, Cyborg is just this attacker, berserker style, and fought a very good fight. She did. It was A girl incredible. that nobody wanted to fight. It was a wonderful fight. Yeah, it was a fantastic fight. Uh, you know, that's fight. like one of those fights, even in, in a loss, like... Her stock you came can't, up. Yeah, you yeah. can't... Yeah, Cyborg thinks I hate her. Look, I, I think she's awesome. I, I'm a fan, and I tweeted this many times along that the UFC needs to make a 145-pound women's mm-hmm. division, but... There's also some realities that you have to address, and those realities have to be addressed for the other women that haven't done anything mm-hmm. as well, just to look up for them. I, I think you're right about that. I think that when people test positive, I think that the, the penalties have to be harsh. They have to be hard. And I don't know what's going on with the new testing and stuff like that. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not in the know when it comes to the UFC. I'm no longer on a team. You know what I mean? It's like everything I do, I read through mm-hmm. MMA media now. So um, I don't know who's testing one and what's going on. But I will say that... The men had been doing it for so long as well. So mm-hmm. should men who were clean have to have fought against men who were dirty? Very good question. And a lot of people think they shouldn't. Yeah. So you know? it's I, I don't know what we do about clean slating it at this point. And it's also, is it the same thing? Is a man taking male hormones the same as a woman taking male hormones? Well, if the man already has the male hormones, right? right? right. Wouldn't that be even more of an increase than a woman taking? Because if a woman, I mean. No. Okay. No, because a woman's adjusting her physiology and becoming masculine, whereas a man is becoming more masculine. 
It's there's a there's a shift literally in the body structure that happens to women when they start taking testosterone. That's why a transgender man goes from a woman to a man all of a sudden grows a beard like Chaz Bono. It changes the shape of your face, changes the tone of your voice. Your Mm -hmm. voice gets deeper. I mean, so many different factors play in it. I mean, it really depends on. There's no. There's also there's a rainbow, like a a broad spectrum of dosages. Like who Mm -hmm. knows how much you're taking, how long you're taking it for, and then. There's also massive negative consequences health-wise yeah, for women. Yeah, that's, that's what's – I mean, it's already hell on your body to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hell on your body to be a female athlete. In many ways, it's wonderful and encouraging. But you're, you're right. And, I, I, again, I don't have an answer for that. I don't think there's a clean slate. I do think that Chris Cyborg is in the position right now with her career. And with the things that have been questioned about her, the things that have been done, she has actually the opportunity now to really spearhead making it all clean. And coming, you know, coming forward with whatever happened in the past with this spears, I forgot the name of it. Spironolactone. Spironol- yeah, well, that's, all of that. That's but less that of was, a concern because yeah. that's not really a performance-enhancing drug. The the spironolactone is not going to, it's not performance-enhancing. Okay. It's not like the so other stuff then it, was. It wasn't a failed test then? Well, or it's it was, it's, or it's it was, not prohibited, or mm-hmm. it is prohibited, but she could get a uh, therapeutic, therapeutic use exemption. Did she? I think they she did, didn't she? I believe they're doing okay. that or in the process okay. of trying to do that. Maybe it has been cleared. But what that means is, look, it's not hurting anybody she competes against. It's not that. Mm -hmm. It's just they don't like people taking it because it can mask some of the effects of um, androgens in in the female body. And it also, um, as a diuretic, diuretics are illegal because diuretics also can mask some of the um, potential properties of testosterone or hormones or that's why they did away with all the the IV rehydration. Yes, yes. I was yes, the yes. only person who liked IV rehydration. You're the only one. No, I think there's I a lot of people it. who liked it. A lot of I people loved liked it. it, and I, I mean, I was clean. I, I hate to say that I was clean my whole life, but I, I was po- possibly because nobody ever offered me anything. If somebody offered you steroids, you think you would have taken it? I don't know. I look back now, and I'm like, I wonder because I wonder how many other women were. Yeah. What if it was back in the day, like the Wild West, like Pride days, like Pride days were the Wild West, like during Pride. Like I talked to Ensign anyway, he, mm-hmm. he, he described about his con- his contract literally in capital letters said, "We will not test you for steroids." Mm-hmm. And Ensign was laughing about it. It was like fucking everybody was on shit back then. You know, I I to that question, I think I probably would have if I'd have been offered it. I don't know, but then mm-hmm. you think about that, and then you think about okay, 2011 was just on the cusp of being the Wild West, right? Mm-hmm. So. If yeah. she did take steroids, if she was on something, mm-hmm. isn't that just what everybody else was trying to do? I don't some know. Some people were. I don't think yeah. Gina was doing it. Oh, I don't no, think I don't Gina think Gina, I don't think Gina did it at all. No. But some women but definitely did, for sure. I think sure. they did. I mean, you look at the old pictures, the, the fighters, the generation mm-hmm. before me, and I'm not throwing out accusations. I'm just saying people with musculature, like like Becky Levi and people like that, you mm-hmm. kind of wonder, like, okay, how, how much of that was... You know, sure. Well, I know girls that just compete in jujitsu tournaments that do testosterone. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just want to be stronger and better, and there's no money in it. They're just trying to get an edge, and it's kind of weird. You know, it's it's weird. It's you know, it's amateur, and no one's testing, and they Mm -hmm. say everyone's doing it, so they're doing it. So you go, okay, like I got no position on this. I mean, I don't Mm -hmm. know, I don't what to say. But when it comes to MMA. And when it comes to professional sports, mm-hmm. and back then, if it was the Wild West, I'm sure a lot of people were doing mm-hmm. it, you know? But Chris Cyborg became sort of the poster girl when she looked the part and then tested positive. Right, right. What, I mean, what do we do with that now? That's a good question. What, what do we do, do with, we with that do now? With that? Like, what because do you do I, with it? I think she's a phenomenal woman. I think she's a kind and good woman and a wonderful fighter for people to look up to. So I don't, 
I don't know what you do with that now. I think that what has to go on the table is just we take everything by what happens today. And if a person mm-hmm. doesn't test positive, we take them at their word. Yeah, the real problem, though, with what's going on today is they're offering these massively steep steep sentences for people and suspensions for people. So, like, first, if you get caught, I think the first suspension is, like, two years. Mm-hmm. And then if you get caught again, it's even deeper. And then three years, it's three times. If you get caught a third time, it's, like, you, life. You're done. Yeah. yeah. Like, the Vanderlei Silva one is the most disturbing one to me mm-hmm. because he ran away from a test and yeah. they banned him for life. Like, that is fucking, that's yeah, abusive. Gotta, yeah, you got to wonder how many other fighters have run away from it, but it just wasn't as public. Like, you know? Sure. Well, not only that, but when you talk to Chael Sonnen about mm-hmm. how sketchy the USADA people were when they came to him, like, they made him do it in a broom closet mm-hmm. and give boys like, this is this sterile? Like, who are you? Do you have an ID? Mm-hmm. Like, they don't even, they don't want to give you ID. They just want to test right away and you just have to listen to them i kind of understand in in the case of him where they may be trying to hawkeye him a little bit more just because of his past you know yeah yeah but it is um i don't know i i don't know when it comes to regulation who regulates the regulators like that is the question right like that's the question yeah but at the same time we don't want this taken away from us right like this whole thing, the, the, the moments of passion, the Darren Elkins mm-hmm. moments. We don't want that taken away from us. And to have that soured by knowing that that person was cheating, was cheating. Yeah. That, you know, it's I think there's a huge emotional investment to see a clean sport. Well, how about the grayest of gray areas, which is Vitor Belfort? Yeah, they let him. Yeah, they let him. I mean, he was a testosterone use exemption. And when he was doing it, holy shit, was yeah, he, he looked, fucking terrifying. He looked, yeah, he looked he, like 19-year-old Vito. Looked like an, yeah. He looked crazier than 19-year-old yeah. Vito. He looked like a demon. Mm-hmm. I mean, Vito would come out and just starch everybody. He was smashing people. Wheel kick Luke Rockhold. Well, we'd never seen him throw a wheel yeah, kick in his life. He threw two wheel kicks in his entire career. Oh, Look at the, yeah. the pictures of him. This is 2007 on the left and 2000, or 2012 on the left and 2017 on the right. Fucking A. That poor guy, though. Can you imagine being on that level? I mean, you, do you take testosterone? Yeah. So can you imagine being on that level where you feel like your body is in a certain, it can perform a certain uh-huh. way, and then have that taken away from you? Yeah. And then, like, just well, having to compete with that and then compete with whatever's going on in your mind, too. Well, there's the thing is that with youth is, you know, you have all this athletic ability, you have all this strength and speed, but mm-hmm. you don't have any experience and wisdom. Right. And then as you gain experience and wisdom, Father Time slowly takes away your physical gifts to the point where you're trying to, like Bernard Hopkins when he fought Joe Smith, mm-hmm. there was that weird moment where you realize like, oh, we've passed the point here where your knowledge and your hard work and discipline makes up for the fact that your body's deteriorating. Right. And you're fighting this young bulldog who's just an animal. He went through the, the ropes, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, it fell on his oh, head. Yeah. It was horrible. It really made me think about like the way boxing rings are set up. Yeah, like, no how kidding. the fuck is it so easy to fall through the ropes? And why, why is there no one there mm-hmm. to see that happening and catch them? Like He fell on his head. Mm-hmm. Didn't know where the fuck he was. Didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So dangerous, so dangerous. I mean, he could have died there. The way he fell back, too, he literally fell head first mm-hmm. and landed on the ground. And I'm assuming it was concrete. I mean, and didn't know what happened, didn't know where he was, thought he got pushed out of the ring, didn't know he got knocked out. He was just so out of it. Yeah. They, but, there comes the time when we have to recognize our mortality, and unfortunately, fighters are not people to do that. Yeah, well, then you look at this. Not to. Yeah. And you're like, he didn't have to recognize it for a couple of years. Yeah. They turned back the time. I mean, you went from Vitor Belfort, 
who fought Rich Franklin, Vitor Belfort, who fought uh, Sexyama, and you know, you look good, mm -hmm. but then when he got on the testosterone, it's like all of a sudden you, you have the phenom, mm -hmm. you have this, this demon. That, that uh, therapeutic use exemption stuff, that, it seemed to spike at a certain time yeah. for a lot of people. Why so is that? people found out it was legal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a bunch <laughs> of shady-ass yeah. doctors. Yeah. I, have, I know some people who use some shady-ass doctors, and what the doctor would literally tell them is you take testosterone for a short amount of time, take a lot of it, mm -hmm. um, get your system hooked on it, then get off of it, and then get tested. Mm -hmm. So then they would go, man, I just got low testosterone. Because your body isn't exactly. producing it. Because yeah. your body, you've, you jolted it down with like 10 weeks of mm -hmm. high-level test, and then you say, oh, I'm feeling a little run down, and maybe I have something wrong with me. I have a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And it's like a lot of it was just guys who take steroids, and their body had stopped producing mm -hmm. it naturally and then they got a therapeutic use exemption and they were shooting it up all the time and then they were going in there and they're 27 years old so the benefits of the previous steroid use didn't linger to the point that or was it a, a mental thing well the benefits there if they if their endocrine system caught up say say if they did a certain amount of cycles and they gained a certain amount of strength there they would they would keep some of that benefit mm -hmm. permanently mm -hmm. but when their endocrine system crashed because they had taken all the steroids and then they got off of it, that's when they can test. Mm -hmm. And the test shows low testosterone. Mm -hmm. That's all they needed to show. They mm -hmm. didn't, didn't need to so show. So they could still physically perform to a higher level than they could have if they've never done steroids in the first place. Probably, but while they're at a low testosterone, they're going to experience very significant mm -hmm. decreases in endurance and mm -hmm. stamina and your, your intensity. All that's going to be down. Your body's like really depressed mm -hmm. like that's one of the things that happens to men when they get head injuries mm -hmm. is that head injuries and traumatic brain injuries cause a disruption in the pituitary gland which causes your body to produce less testosterone which oftentimes leads to soldiers football players fighters mm -hmm. becoming severely depressed and right. oftentimes they lean towards alcoholism and drug addiction and a lot of that is trying to combat that depression i actually that that makes a great deal of sense i was never tested to the extent of this but when i when i quit fighting i was put on estrogen because i have a really messed up reproductive system from i don't know if i was like it's i have a polycystic ovarian syndrome which it, it's anyway whatever it is i was put on a birth control pill with very high estrogen hmm. and that led me to have to go on antidepressants, which led Whoa. me to have to go into this, which led me to, yeah, it was just the, the amount of estrogen. Why did that lead you to, what I what wanted to have there? babies really badly. And um, I had horrible, not to be too, whatever, we were talking you about mean everything. while you got on while the- I was on, While I so was fighting, I, um, I had horrible periods. Like I would have periods for an entire month and stuff like that while I was Jesus. fighting. Yeah, like when my body fat lowered for whatever reason, you know, women are supposed to stop. They, they're supposed to enter a menorrhea, you know, but for me it was different. And I would, I was just like, I was bleeding all the time. Like it was a, it was a long 10 years, uh. <laughs> but it's just like, I, you know, like my body was really, really weird. And so when I stopped fighting, I was like, I was used, I was sick of being in pain. I was sick of this and that. I was like, I don't have to, um, I didn't want to put any chemicals into my body when I was fighting. Right. I was really worried about that, like worried about if that would make me gain weight if I went on the birth control pill or something like that, you know. So when I quit fighting, you know, I went to a gynecologist and she put me on and then it just, I crashed. Like, I, I don't know which birth control pill it was, but I was severely depressed when I quit fighting. So the birth control pills caused depression. It, it regulated me. I don't know if it caused depression, but I would say that the changing chemicals in my body mm. post-fight. So I could, you can't just say it's like this one thing, but I would say right. heightened estrogen, probably I was all of a sudden eating carbs again for the first time. And for, you know what I mean? A right. lot of things were different. Right. I wasn't exercising however many hours a day. Everything in my life was different. But I will say, you know, I put on 30 pounds within six months of retiring. Wow. Like, it, yeah, it was insane. I mean, I, I have breasts now, which is a great thing, but it wasn't something I was used to for a decade. 
And, um, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's so funny about how when your, your reproductive chemicals or when all that gets messed up, how that actually messes with your brain as well. Mm. Because I can understand these men coming off of, of head injuries, if they're having a decreased like, uh, chemical, like testosterone or whatever it is, I can understand that actual weirdness, mm. like taking part and, and that affecting their brains severely. Yeah, and the shutdown of the endocrine system post-steroid cycles has led a lot of guys to depression. They mm -hmm. even think it's led people to suicide. Mm -hmm. And if you're inclined towards depression in the first place, mm -hmm. I'm sure it probably gets accentuated by oh, those yeah. things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a big history of depression in my family. I went through a really rough time. Um, and then, remarkably, I discovered writing, and that was great, and that's led me on a completely different path. But, yeah, uh, post-fighting, there's something about that. It's not even – I mean, I think the chemicals are a great – I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist. That's my family. They're all scientists and shit. I don't, I don't know any of it. Like, I don't know the science behind it exactly. But I will say that that, um, I don't know that it's necessarily always chemical. I think that there's a big part of it. It's also purposeful. I think when you don't have a purpose, when mm. you don't have a goal and something to strive for, then your body reacts to that as well and your brain reacts to that as well. So, so I it's think probably that, that as well. Yeah, I think something. And then the, something. the exercise thing too. I'm sure that played a big factor. Yeah. The lack of exercise or the much greatly reduced yeah it's schedule. you know different you can run three miles a day but it's not the same as sparring right, right. every other day or whatever you're, you're doing or do you know doing jujitsu twice a day or whatever it is yeah. yeah so much of probably what depression is is so many it's just a giant combination of factors yeah i i think yeah i mean again i'm not i'm not a, yeah. i have a great therapist but i'm not you know i can't tell you what that is i i, I but i can say that um there is something to having all of that in balance um having being chemically, I guess, physiologically in balance with the way your body's supposed to be and then have your um, exercise the way it's supposed to be and then have your purpose the way it's supposed to be. And it's such a weird balance as human beings that when any of those things get thrown out of whack, sure. you're, you're headed for trouble. Yeah, and friendships, family, right. you know, yeah. all the, the different relationships that you keep in your life. Mm -hmm. I saw this really interesting clip from this guy and he was talking about, he's a, um, a rapper, I think he was, but he was talking about his mental diet mm -hmm. and the way he looked at it like, is like that people are really concentrating constantly about what they eat, mm -hmm. but they're not concentrating constantly about what they take in their mind. Mm -hmm. And that like you should really be aware of your mental diet, too. You know, that if you snack on too much junk food mentally, it'll weaken your mind. You know, I like, think that makes sense. I think yeah, that makes sense. sense. Yeah, I think that we don't push ourselves mentally uh, a lot. And when it comes to that, I, I think. Honestly, it's just coming down to, I mean, it's not a cure-all, but reading. If you just read, if you yeah. just sit and force yourself to read and you actually engage with a text, all of a sudden you realize something is happening in your brain. You're creating space for more thought in your brain. Mm -hmm. But also you can't be exposed to too much bullshit. And who knows what's bullshit and what's not bullshit. I mean, there has to be a discernment somewhere along the line. Yes. Some sort of like, uh, I guess... Um, I don't know, literary consciousness or something like that where you know that, I mean, I'm addicted to Twitter. But, Are you? Oh, I love Twitter. I love it. <laughs> and I know that I'm a giant bitch on there. And I don't Are care. You? I, I am. How are you a bitch? Well, oh, I'm why? always telling people to go fuck themselves. Always. Why are you like, doing I'm, that? Because it's so enjoyable to me. It's like playing a game. <laughs> and I, I, you know, the part of me is like I hate that part of myself, but I also really like it because I think I'm becoming, it's, to me, it's not, I'm not a brand. There's no Julie Kedzie fighter who has to impress anybody anymore. Like, you know, there's, granted, I represent Invicta to a certain extent, but I, I know, I fully understand that Shannon could fire me if I say something just 
outrageous and horrible. She wouldn't. She's a wonderful person. And I'm no longer behind the scenes there. I'm just, I'm a commentator. I'm not somebody making any decisions with the company. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. When it comes to Twitter, I... So what do you do? You get in flame wars of people? Like um, someone so, says you know, some stupid I, shit to you and you I, fight yeah, back? Yeah, I kind of enjoy when people insult me and I go after really? them. Really? Yeah, but I do feel my brain deteriorating a little bit when they do that. You know, it's just like, I mean, I, I, I know it's just like, okay, I need to stop. I need to put this down now. But, you know, when they come at me, they're just like, you're a feminazi, you're this, you're that. I'm just like, yeah, Who come on. Who says that? Oh, Why do they say you're a feminazi? Oh, because I'm very outspoken being a feminist. I'm very, you know, when I talk about socialism, when I talk about I hate Donald Trump, when I talk about this, you know. And yeah, but I would never label you in, like, you're just a genuine person, like, who happens to be a woman who believes what you believe. Like, you, you're you not, like, sexist. Well, you're not, like, anti-male you know, but or I, anything. I, I know I love men. I I love men. <laughs> I believe you. Settle down. But, <laughs> but the thing is, um, I am pro-woman to a certain extent. I mean, when it comes to MMA, I'm, I'm more interested in what's going on with women in the sport than with men. That's just Makes where sense. I'm oriented. That's sure, my, that's I mean, my that's career. part of your job. And, um, but, well, I don't know. There's this association that, first of all, the whole feminazi label is just, I mean, that's the first thing. Like I said, yeah, I'm really proud to be a feminist. And then people are just like, oh, that means you hate men. You think they're all rapists. And I'm like, no, so, that discredits men so much. Like, why? No. Well, it's silly. And the, the, the term feminist has been so co-opted by negative thoughts. So many people have this negative connotation they attach to it. Of course. And it's movements that, you know, third wave feminism. This, you know, uh -huh. there's certain when whenever the people... real fucking problem, male feminists, they've ruined it. Those fucking twats. You know, it's men a... ruin everything. Uh, they've ru even ruined feminism. No. <laughs> That's funny. I know. I know. Jamie was on here and he was a friend of mine and something weird happened with that guy. I don't know what's going on with his life right now. But I, Jamie I Kilstein? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not good. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to like speculate on any of that. Yeah. But we were really good friends for a while. And, you know, they, I know his like he was very disliked as a male feminist, quote unquote male. And that's, well, it's because everybody thought that he was what he just got accused of being. Right. That and, they're just poon the hounds is, that are taking that angle. I I. That is an interesting trend. I honestly think sometimes people are just assholes who want sex. And I also think sometimes people are manipulative assholes who want sex. I don't see him as a manipulative person. But well, again, I might... You didn't have anything have to a, offer him. Yeah, or, you know, probably not. I didn't interact. in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. But, I don't know either. You know, I, don't, I think people are a bunch of different things depending on who they are at what yeah. time of the day. I think it'd be nice if the whole world was egalitarian. Mm -hmm. And if we all looked at people as just treating them who they are based on their character and their personality and not categorizing them so specifically like, oh, you are a woman, so you are less or you are a man and you are more yeah, but or when vice you, versa. when you say male feminist and you're like, that's the problem. I mean, are you joking when you yes. say that? Are you, are because, yes. yeah, okay, yes, good. Because yes. <laughs> I'm like, because, I mean. No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, the problem is there's a lot of people that virtue signal yeah. and a lot of people that are posturing and a lot of people that are putting a label on themselves to try to make themselves seem like they're in a higher moral high ground than the rest of the folks around them. And that's the motivation for doing it. And, that becomes yeah. transparent and people mm -hmm. get angry at that. They recognize what it is. So when someone like Jamie Kilstein slips up after all these years of virtue signaling, they're like, ah, oh, I knew it, you fuck. But You're does that... Does that really negate some of the good things that he's done if he's influenced like some what? men? I don't know. The virtue. I guess what are the good things? I don't know. If he's maybe said, oh, hey, a woman is actually a person. 
Yeah, it's well, absolutely. Who the fuck doesn't think a woman is a person? Uh, well, a lot I don't of think people on my get, Twitter timeline. <laughs> let me tell you something. Those people, if there's a person out there that doesn't think that a woman's a person, fucking Jamie Kilstein is not going to change their opinion. It's just going to he's just going to broadcast it mm-hmm. and let everybody know that's how he thinks. And he's going to get all this love, and people are going to send him all these likes, and they're going to give him thumbs up and say nice things to him on Twitter. And that may or may not be a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's more a good thing than a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But you're not going to change some asshole's opinion I don't, by saying something like that. I don't know that you are, but I, I don't know. Have you changed any asshole's opinion with any of your things? That, if you've come out and said something, have you? do you think you've changed people's opinions? I if think people's things? opinions change if they value what you're saying, if they believe that you're being truthful, and if what you're saying is compelling enough for them to reconsider the way they look at things. Mm-hmm. It is possible, mm-hmm. but it's not 100%, and it's not the motivation behind doing things in the first place. I'm not trying, I don't ever try to change people's opinions, but I do mm-hmm. try to express myself as cleanly and as accurately and as honestly as mm-hmm. I can. And I think that, in my opinion, in my experience, when I've heard people like you talking about your life, like you just talking about your life in this podcast, I take that in and I know it's pure and it'll make me consider every little everything that a person says every sentence every conversation that you have with someone where they're being real with you it adds more knowledge to your database of human interaction mm-hmm. and the way people behave and think now, and i think in that way mm-hmm. it does slowly make you consider more things about people and that adds to the overall surface area of knowledge that you have about people in general i that absolutely do you in your position because you have considerable influence do you worry about having people kind of latch on things hive-minded and 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 go a direction with do you feel a responsibility i guess to people that- i definitely feel a responsibility in not manipulating them mm-hmm. and i definitely feel a responsibility in not taking advantage of that mm-hmm. not starting a cult or something like mm-hmm. that yeah 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 i mean but it's the the good part about it is if you don't need anything from anybody mm-hmm. like you're not trying to get people to send you 50 dollars a month for the fucking you know platinum plan where you get access to the secret messages from know. L. Ron Hubbard or whatever. <laughs> yeah. you know, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you can take advantage of people in, in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, that that's, a, that's a real issue with any sort of hive mind thinking, mm-hmm. right? And I, yeah, I don't know where I get. I, this, this is fascinating. I, I guess religion and things like that always trouble me. And, and that hive mind mentality, that, 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 that troubles me. It troubles me. Yeah, it should. That I mean, to be honest, it troubles me that Alex Jones was on here or somebody who, ha- who kind of leads that sort of thing. Yes, but when Alex Jones was on here, I think people got to understand Alex Jones way more after me getting him drunk and stoned <laughs> and having him talk about interdimensional child molesters. Like, you get to see a channel like, oh, this is kind of like a f- half wacky show where he's also commenting on the craziness of the world. But you got to see who he really is. What I, the guy that I've known for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I wanted to do by having him on. Like, people are like, why are you friends with that guy? I'm like, watch. Watch what happens. We'll get him fucked up. We're going to have some fun. And you, you realize, like, oh, this guy's like, he's kind of wacky. Like, half of what he's doing is almost like a show. It's a show, right. It's a yeah. brand, right? Well, but, it's like, I it mean, is and it is, and that's kind of him. But if people are, are buying into that. But what are they buying into that's false? And what are they buying into that's true? Unfortunately, a lot of what Alex Jones has been presenting over these years is actually true. Like what? 
like agent provocateurs, like when they have peaceful protests, they'll send in people to smash windows and they're wearing government issue boots and they get rounded up and they don't wind up being prosecuted because they were literally brought in by the police to turn a peaceful protest mm -hmm. into a violent protest. Mm -hmm. Like the people that took over Occupy Wall Street and mm -hmm. undercover cops that were doing all this fucking crazy chaotic violent shit to get people to move in and break up these camps and break up these protests when they were all legal. Alex Jones sort of exposed when all he, that stuff first. When he puts his support, and I don't want to be, I actually don't want to be in this, I'm not trying to be controversial, honestly. I'm just like no, following express conversation. Yourself, express yourself. But when he puts his support behind people like Donald Trump, who is actually pushing these sorts of agendas. What sorts like, of agendas? Like, uh, the the anti-protesting, like trying to change the laws so that you can run over protesters when they're peacefully protesting. Is he changing like that. the laws? I don't know. He's changing the laws, but these things you are coming up. You can run over up. What is that? Uh, it's something, uh, it's, it's, it was Wisconsin or Michigan, there's something like that. They're trying to put a thing into- One of them farm states. Whatever it is, yeah, I know, and I, I'm so bad because when I follow my train of thought, then I can never have citations, and it drives me bananas because I don't want to present information as speculation. Well, right? I think but, the people are trying to stop people from violating other people's rights. Right, but like, is a person's right to drive a car down a street more important than a person's right to express themselves by saying, I don't want this to happen, I am willfully challenging the law right here in a peaceful way. But it's not peaceful if your grandpa is dying and you need to get to the hospital and some asshole wants to stand in front of him with a macrame hat on with a, you know, I'm a male feminist sign. Right. But gotta, is that, gotta, uh, what instance are you quoting specifically? Well, we're talking like, about blocking people on the road. Right. It doesn't help anyone. No, it doesn't help anyone. I mean, I've been arrested for political protests before and I was very aware I was crossing a line onto here. I was doing something. I was going to be arrested for it. But it was the voices behind me and the collective voices together that were doing something not knowing that they were going to be arrested, knowing that the part about going to jail and being able to write about it or being able to understand that you were taking a stance on something, you're just trying to bring attention to something that you think is wrong. Well, what were you arrested for? Oh, it was many years ago, and all the military guys already hate me, but it was the School of the Americas. I was 18, I think I got arrested twice, 18 or 19. Um, it was the School of the Americas when they were they were teaching the counterinsurgency techniques um, down in Fort Benning, Georgia. I'm, I'm banned for life there. But I was very religious then. I was very into social justice. I was really like, I wanted to be a nun and I wanted to change the world and I wanted people to not kill each other anymore. And I wanted us not to fund well, that's military noble... groups in South America who were slaughtering people. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it was protesting. I was stepping deliberately onto a military base and saying, no, I don't want this to happen anymore. I'm peacefully gonna go with you. I, you're arresting me, I know my rights. And the, and, and the soldiers- Okay, well let's unpack that because okay. what you did there was you made a, you, a, there's a political protest, you went to the scene of where you think these terrible things are taking place, and you took a stand knowing that you were going to get arrested, mm -hmm. and that it was going to bring media attention to this. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference between that and you deciding, we're going to block the 101 because mm -hmm. black lives matter. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with all those people that were driving to work. You're violating their rights to pass. You're violating their space. You're stopping them from being able to move freely. You're also and a lot calling of them a are great deal of attention to it, But you're, you? you're doing it in a way that inconveniences and puts people in danger, and it's not necessary. You could mm -hmm. do it in a public space. You could do it in places where you're allowed to protest. You can do it, and you could still get your voice out and still mm -hmm. get your message out and not block traffic on the highway. The blocking traffic on the highway is attention whoring and it's attention whoring in a very dangerous way because you are stopping people from getting to medication you're stopping people from getting medical treatment your people can be in the middle of giving birth there's a lot of shit that happens we you you fuck with people's ability to travel mm -hmm. and move around we rely on that it's extremely significant 
So when you just decide that, you know, you, whatever, I want transgender rights for the bathroom, let's block this fucking highway. Just because you think you can get attention doing something like that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. There are ways to get attention doing things that are lawful, and there's ways that are noble, and then there's blocking the fucking are highway like a baby. Though? Are they still working, though? I'm not just talking about a highway. But are they are, working? Are, are bringing uh, attention to things, I mean, is that still working, the Dakota pipeline and stuff like that, when people were protesting in a peaceful way? Well, it certainly way. did. It shut it down. It shut it down, but it just... Trump I mean, got it's in back. office yeah. and things change. You it's know, you, and I don't even know if that's the best example of it. Well, but it is I'm, a good example because it was peaceful protesting and it did get a lot of attention, including me and a lot of other people mm-hmm. who, prote- who, who uh, tweeted about it mm-hmm. and put up links about it and let people know about it and talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it does get attention. But when it the does. power... I, I guess when the thing, power... It, it, I, I understand what you're saying and the, I'm not Dakota disregarding... Pipeline, they're they're yeah. protesting there Yeah, the I'm scene. not disregarding what you're saying about um, the highways and the stuff like that because that wouldn't be the kind of protest that I would want to be a part of. That's not the kind of thing I would want to enact. Now, did I believe in, do I believe in the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes, to a certain extent. I also believe in police officer training and and better training for police officers in those, in situations of high stress. I think that there's so much nuance to what's going on there. And there's so much carried on. Um, And and, and the, the highway blocking and the stuff like that, you're giving very, very good counter arguments to, to this. But I will say that there's also something in effect, when you can make the loudest noise and you know something is wrong, isn't it your responsibility to try and fix things? Not by stopping the highway. Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's not so by stopping the highway. But if people are so determined to be against what you're saying, they're so in, in rooted. You, people have to make noise in the strangest ways. They have to do also, what pe- people Also, people are very self-righteous and they think that you have Absolutely. to listen to them and you don't want to listen to them. No, you it's don't want to It's your right as an American to not have to listen to someone's protest as much as it's your right as an American to protest. It is. You can't force someone to listen to you because you think you're right. And that's what you're doing by standing in front of someone on the highway and blocking their passage. Okay, but getting beyond the highway thing, okay. because again, what you're well, that's bringing up... the only up... thing that I have an issue with. Oh, okay, okay. The, literally, I have no problem with protesting. I think, but when you're protesting on the highway and you're blocking traffic, you're mm-hmm. a cunt. Well, I mean, that's a shitty way to do I, it. I, I, I cannot disagree with you to a certain extent where it is a very inconvenient thing and it can be a dangerous thing. And yes. I don't think any protesting should endanger people's lives at all. By the way, I, I, don't I hate think... marathons too for the same reason. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I just, it makes a lot of sense. But at it least those are scheduled. I, I don't think that that's um, caused to be able to have the right to, to run somebody over and kill no, them. No, you shouldn't have the right I to run somebody over and kill them. I don't think somebody's life but, is not worth something because they're expressing themselves in a way that you no. disagree with. No, but that's not necessarily what the law is saying. No. The law is saying that you exonerate someone's responsibility if someone jumps in front of your car and tries to stop and you. And that makes and We've seen a people assault people, smash their car windows because they're trying to get through some sort of a protest line, and they don't have anything to do with it what the right. protest is. They just want to get out of there. They're I, in their car and they're stuck and maybe they have their kid with them and the kid's crying and freaking out and they right. hit the gas. This is incredibly uh, detailed. This is an incredibly detailed example of something that I don't actually have the reference point to. I don't have a citation for this. So I can't argue with you on any of the story that you're giving me because I have no way of knowing this this incident. But I do think that your speculation is correct in in the sense that I think that no, that would be horrible. That would be horrible to have people saying, okay, this means more to me than you're getting your kid, to, your sick kid to, to the hospital. I think absolutely. I think that that, no. 
I don't think that anybody's life is worth more than another person's life. Well, it's also there's something going on where there's a lot of misdirected rage and anger. Like my people friend are was very at, angry. My friend was at one of these things where he was trying to get his car through, and they were all blocked and stopped, and people had cr- cl- crossed hands, locked hands, and blocked the highway. And some guy came up to his window and is screaming, "Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter!" Screaming at his window. He's like, "Yeah, I agree, man. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm agree, but I'm stuck in traffic. Why are you yelling at me? I'm not doing anything." I like, think we're very angry right now. There's he's like a this lot white guy yelling at him, another white guy, and he's screaming Black Lives Matter at him. It's like, okay, this is so misdirected. If my friend is a Democrat. He votes liberal. He's so so liberal, like down the board with pretty much everything. And someone's screaming at him. It's screaming at him like he has done something wrong because this person is misguided and misdirected rage. And they're a, they're a part of this whole mob mentality. Everyone's together. Mm-hmm. They're all chanting and yelling, and everyone's getting excited, mm-hmm. and they think that they're doing the right thing. And these kids today a lot of them that are involved in these protests they're so enamored by this idea that they're doing the right thing and they're enacting change they don't realize that they're also polarizing the opposition and this is one of the reasons why Donald Trump was elected in the first place because so many people are so tired of people shoving in their face their righteous indignation shoving in their face this locking hands and blocking the highway and you have to listen to us that is energy and it goes like this and then when it goes like that people go like that mm-hmm. it's in and out there's a cycle and can you understand where the rage is built up of people felt like they've been ignored and they've been pushed back so hard that they actually start exploding like that and they get into these hives because they have no other group to belong to there's definitely a way that you could see that there's and definitely how, a way that makes sense i guess what is the appropriate way to do things then continue what is the way to do to things? continue to write to continue to talk to continue to express yourself in a way that's going to make other people consider what you're saying and maybe change people's minds and thoughts. And in it's not an instantaneous no, thing. That's the problem. It's not like you put up a sign and everything's fixed. No, no we it's are an take inst- time. We are a society that um, right. But I think that's part the- of the rage of people screaming is they want it to change now. And by going up to my friend's window and yelling "Black Lives Matter." This fuckhead thinks he's going to change that, but he doesn't even really think that. He thinks he's got the right to do it. you got to fucking listen to me, man. There's this thing going on where people get these mob mindsets where they think they're allowed to hit a girl because she's got a red hat on that says, make Bitcoin great again. Have you seen that video? Mm-hmm. That poor girl got maced yeah, in the face. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, no. It was a joke hat. They maced her in the fucking face. I get that. I get what you're saying, and right? I'm I'm I am on board with with the sentiment of what you're saying. I really do understand it, but I also think there's such a a finger pointing going on, on and I I'm guilty of it on my Twitter because I go after these fuckheads all the time. <laughs> they call me you, you, you feminazi, and I say no, fuck Donald Trump. Seriously, that person is not qualified to be president. Well, Hillary's bad too. It's like that's not. I didn't say anything about Hillary. Right. I said this person in office yes. is not qualified. He should step down. Um, but I, and, I don't think and he really I wanted that. to be president. No, I don't think he wanted to be president at all. I think the whole thing no, just got I way think, out of hand. Yeah, no, I think he does, he's terrified. <laughs> he is a scared, terrified little man up well, there. Well, maybe he's not terrified. Maybe he's crazy. But he, I don't think he wanted to do this. No. I think this just sort of happened. Yeah, I think I think he didn't think it through. And I think that's when we're talking about not thinking it through. I think the guy screaming at your friend in the window, he's not thinking it through. He's caught right. on to something. He's caught up in well, a wave of something. he thinks he can do it. There's a million other people behind him. Everyone's screaming. He's looking at my friend. My friend's vulnerable. My friend's mm-hmm. below him because he's seated. Mm-hmm. And he's just screaming black lives matter black lives matter it's like okay. yeah and but it's that bullshit but it's that it's also that twitter bullshit. generation yeah. protesting it, you know but it's also we have learned 
it's so hard to just generalize and say everything is because of this and everything is because of that, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it's it so everything has to come from an individual place. And at the same time, we're all trying to belong to communities. We're all trying to belong to something we believe in. Right. And and we're latching onto that. And then I think that the sins that happen, no, the sins, that whatever, that happen along the way, the missteps that happen along the way, we tend to forgive them instead of pointing out, no, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't affect somebody who's driving their child to work or something like that. that. That's not what should happen. But we do tend to forgive the people who are on the same team as us, don't we? Of course. And that's where the, the make America great fuckers, sorry, I th- well, any, they do all that. They can't see their team lose. And they'll mm-hmm. defend him now to the death. They'll defend his decisions. He does something wrong. Well, you don't understand how it works, Julie. Mm-hmm. No, I, actually, I do understand how it works. This person is not supposed to be in power. This person's not supposed to represent America. This is and 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 he is and he's not who I want the world to see America as. I think we're a great country, and we we fuck up a lot. There's also a great. problem with having a popularity contest to decide who yeah. gets to run things. Imagine if they had a popularity contest to get to see who's the dean of Harvard. Yeah. Like, what's the curriculum going to be this year? The curriculum's going to be Jesus, because <laughs> yeah, right? I fucking won, pussies. Yeah, no, it, well, I you mean, know? that's what's going to be happening right now. Yeah. We're going to do away with, you know, the public, all the vouchers and the shit that's happening. There's a lot of weird shit going it's, on. That Jeff Sessions guy scares the shit out oh of me. Oh, my God, he's He wants terrifying. to bring back Just Say No. Yeah. He wants to what? bring back the 1980s yeah. Just Say No he, campaign. What, what he just said, on, the marijuana has the same negative effects as heroin. Yeah, like, it's slightly less bad than yeah, heroin. What the hell, dude? It's like, a child. I, it's an old child. And it's... Yeah, it's not good. No, it's not good. And and I I cuz I get worked up thinking about it. But I think you know about these people in power what's good and I get about worked it up. Is you get worked out and people get worked up rather and they start talking about it and they also realize that hey man, it really does matter if you vote. It really mm-hmm. does matter if you're politically active. Right. It really does matter if you talk about these things and you care. But the team mentality that we have, the us versus them, it just gets so weird. It gets so fucking crazy. People get so out of control with it, and they, like you said, they the people that make America great again. People they don't want to hear shit about the left. No, they don't want to hear shit about Bernie. They want to t- say Barack Obama's a Muslim and f- from fucking Kenya. Yeah, and they don't. And I'm guilty of not wanting to know good things about Donald Trump. Yeah. I don't want to know them. I don't care. I don't. I, I don't care because I see so much. You know, it's just like there's so much that's working against mm-hmm. human achievement with him being in power and the people he's appointing in power. There and- is, but I think it gives people a goal. I think it gives people, like, I think without opposition, it's very difficult to get motivated. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a significant amount of opposition now. And people are, I think they're organizing, people on the left are organizing in a way that they never have before. And hopefully, hopefully, people will understand, there, there'll be someone along the line that understands that the polarization effect that happens between choosing these hardline teams, left and right, and not recognizing the possibility that there's so many people in the middle that just pick a side. They mm-hmm. just decide to go left or decide to go right. And they could be on either side. But both of them are unreasonable. Both of them are unrealistic. Yeah. You know, and yeah, Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate. She was a terrible opposition candidate. Hopefully next time there'll be someone that's really good and will understand what is the problem with having a megalomaniacal egomaniac who's a fucking uh, a business vulture run run the country. <laughs> Which happened. I mean, that was the choice. This yeah, one or this one. Yeah, you know, yeah. I will say, I, in my opinion, she was more qualified. She served as secretary of the state. Now, I didn't like that she was a professional politician because yeah. I think when you're a professional politician then you're dedicated to just winning and not you know but she's I don't also, know I don't she was know a her liar. I don't know, know I mean, her and I problems. don't there yeah yeah it's I real think, problems but think, who the fuck wants to be president that's the other problem well the thing is like who the people who want to be president don't understand it's the highest 
public service office that you can possibly do. Like, but you, you're also going you to get shit on. Yeah, no. Like the whole world's going to dump on your head. Yes, and you have to abs- absolutely serve the country. Like that's, that's what I yes. don't get. I don't understand how anybody would want to be president and want to give that much of themselves up. Yeah. But I also can see how people would want to aspire to to serve the country, not lead the country, serve the country. And right. that's that's where I just I lose my shit. Like honestly, uh, so many of my friends, I have. I've tried to express this to them that I can't have conversations with them on Twitter anymore. I have to talk to them via text. Like I really? can't because yeah, because people jump into my conversation. I get it. Oh, I'm, I see. I see. You know, and it's just, and it's just I got so many rape threats during this fucking election because really? I was oh my god, it was insane. It was just to the point where it's just like okay, I can't speak with this person who's arguing with me, even though they're my friend. And I'm not unfriending them, not not being their friend. I'm just like, you have to talk to me one-on-one because right. so many people were just coming at me. And, and well, that's it's, like having a conversation in a mall and people just walk by yeah. and start yelling at you. It's I'll just, fucking rape you. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> good luck. I mean, yeah. what, what do you do with that? I'm, like, I'm, I'm okay with understanding like that kind of, I guess that kind of, it's not an assault. It's it's a word indicating it. So I mean, but I've been not a public figure necessarily, but I've, I've had people talk shit about me to my face, talk shit about me here and there because of my previous career. Because, in, you know, in MMA, you get a certain amount of people just telling you how terrible you are. But it, it, to a certain extent, you don't also, you want to be desensitized to somebody to threatening to rape you. Right. You don't want to be desensitized. That's not, you never want that to be, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. It's a horrible thing. Well, it's also so fucking easy to say something and just type it out yes. and try to get, I'm, I'm going to get Julie's fucking goat. I'm yeah, gonna right. Think. And yeah. I'm going to get pissed. And She's when I'm looking mad. for a fight, I, yeah. I jump right on it because I, I want to fight him, you know? Why do you want to do that, though? Do you, um, do I miss combat. Like it? <laughs> <laughs> really, it's, I miss arguing with people. I do. I, like, arguing with my fists or arguing. I miss combat. I do miss that. Like, Have you I, thought about, that. like, maybe entering grappling competitions or something? Yeah. Not... I, you know, with that, I actually, Iowa has a really good uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu club, and I went there once, and I had a great time rolling, and then I just, I don't know what it is about the way my mentality works, but I feel like it would distract me away from my writing. And I know mm. it wouldn't. I know it would probably be balancing me more, but I get so intense about the things that I'm doing. Like, I had a list of questions for you today just because I wanted to find out what you think about certain things. Like, I just get so uh, I narrow-minded maybe as a thing for it, but I just get so obsessed about getting answers to certain things or asking questions about things, and I'm afraid I do that with grappling and jujitsu and I would get too far into that right and not address the new direction that my life needs to take uh, you sound a lot like me <laughs> really well, I'm a terrible stand-up comedian, so you, 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 I'm, I'm nothing like you. You're good. But so. I mean, you're you're a need to like get completely absorbed in things. Yeah, it's you know, and then you worry about being absorbed in other things. Yeah, I, I do, and it's like it's a weird. It's I got sort of diagnosed when I went through my depression spell. Like I'd been, I'd had depression before, but you know, post-fight depression was pretty rough. And um, you know, I was on this, I was on that, and my body was like getting all weird and. Um, they said that I have real attention deficit disorder problems. And I'm still going through the testing for that. But they did give me Adderall, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Another also dangerous. Very dangerous. I know. But it's God. also, it calmed me down so much. I really? was so calm. And I was like, oh. Adderall calmed you down. Yes. Yeah, that's what they say about the people that have real ADHD. It's, they give you Adderall. And you just, it's it just down. like, oh, okay, this makes a lot more sense. I'm not looking at 10,000 things at once, right? Like, I'm I always looking at 10,000 things at once. Well, I, Hmm. You know, and the, actually, <laughs> hmm. it's something I did talk to my therapist about. I was just like, I, what if I'm going to lose creativity this way? Right. Like, I'm not going to... No, you on, still on the antidepressants? No, no. I went off, off of them. That. When I started school, um, 
they mess with your sex life a little bit. Uh-oh. I don't have an active one anymore, so it doesn't matter. But, you know, it's just it was like you can't, for me, it was like it was really hard for me to reach orgasm and stuff when I was Holla. on them. I know. We're talking everything. I, like, I try <laughs> not to blush. I know. I shit my pants. I, I couldn't <laughs> orgasm for a year. Like, you know. For but, a year? <laughs> yeah, about. I think. Whoa. It was rough. It was rough. But I was also so sad. Like, Fuck. you know, like, I don't know. God damn, but, you know, now, now that I'm off of them, I'm also mid-30s, mm-hmm. so sex is awesome, like, as a woman in your mid- Like, really? I turned I turned 36 on Saturday, and I'm just like, I've never been in a happier, like, which is weird, because you think, okay, well, my fertility is dwindling, dwindling I may not have kids, I may have kids, who knows what's going to happen, but sex as a woman in your mid-30s is awesome. Now it's I know. So much better. Yeah, now you know. I wasn't like, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's something that would keep you up at nights. What is a woman? I wonder. I, think about mm. it. no, <laughs> but it's, I can't mm. believe I'm talking about this, but it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't it. matter. It's it's real it's life, life and real bodies and yeah. how people go through things. And antidepressants really messed me up. Mm. Um, I've heard that, that before from men yeah. as well. Yeah, it was it yeah. was tough, but it was needed. I I didn't I didn't want to hurt myself anymore. And I think that I was going down a path where I was going to be hurting myself. Mm. So, yeah. With your decisions, with the mindset. Yeah, and just physically. Like, I have a, a history of eating disorders and doing mm. things. And it's like I could see myself slipping into that path again. Okay. And so it was like leaving fighting and then discovering that I actually really want to explore this new area of fighting that is writing or this new area of creativity that is writing that you can bring fighting into. And um, I needed all of these kind of things to be laid out. And I thought I, I probably would have interrupted myself if I hadn't gone on antidepressants. And I hadn't kind of pulled back a little bit from feeling everything so intensely. And were you worried that the, you were worried that the Adderall was going to invade your creative thoughts and um, somehow I'm, I'm worried about up? that now. Mm-hmm. I'm still being tested. Like they put me on it, but they said we have to go through all this testing for it. So I'm still being tested for if I have attention deficit disorder or whatever, whatever it is. Um, that makes me think in a peculiar way or not be able to get tasks finished. Mm. And so, you know, we're, we're, I'm still being tested for it. But, you know, taking it now, I am able to um, I'm able to calm down. How often do you take it? Um, once a day, but it only lasts four hours. So my doctor gave me enough for two a day. I've only taken one today, and it was hours. I've been drinking a shitload of coffee, but I, I took one, like, earlier this morning. But that and what does, it, what does it do? Like, what's the effect? So if, say... I wake up in, in, in my room, and, and I look, and it's messy in my room. Um, what I tend to do, or my tendency to do, especially uh, post-fighting, whenever I enter this weird mind space, is panic about, this is messy here. This being messy here means I won't be able to complete this task. This will happen here. This will happen here. And then I'm never going to be able and then I just get paralyzed. And oh. I, I panic, and I, I'm fearful that I can't actually just get out of bed to put a shirt on or to, to pick something up. Because everything all of a sudden clouds in at once. And um, it, it would lead me to hyper-focus on really strange things. And I think that actually helped with fighting. If that's what I have. I'm still in the diagnosis like process of this. But, you know, so far this is the medicine that's worked the best for me. But um, when, when I was fighting, one thing that I did do poorly was I would go from A to C instead of go to A to B to C. I would see what would happen after I won the fight in my mind when I first started training camp, which a lot of fighters do, and I think that helps. But sometimes you miss B where the actual mm. fight happens. And in my mind, sometimes I would gloss over that. And I would get caught up in things, and I would wait for this to happen and wait for that to happen or be paralyzed and not be able to make the next step. Right. Now I feel like I am able to, when I take a pill, I'm able to put my feet on the ground, out of bed, look up and say, okay, my room needs to be cleaned, but first I need to do this. 
and I'm able to make, I'm able to go A to B and then do C. Instead of just jumping over and then looking at C and then thinking all the things after me just come crashing at me and I freak out. Now, you said earlier that post-career, mm-hmm. you started thinking about brain trauma. Yeah. You started yeah. thinking about, do you, do, what, like, what thoughts specifically? Um, I, I wondered about, well, the depression, right? Right. You know, and I wonder about how many shots that I've taken. I mean, yeah. I had a good chin. I was rocked a lot in the gym. I, I sparred a lot. I mean, I, you know, like I said, I, like back in the old days, I would fight whatever opportunity came my way. I never took, had, didn't have CT scans till I got into strike force, which was late in my career. So, or CT or um, MRI, I, I forgot which one does what. So I don't know how much of um, the ditheriness that I have is like... Dithery? Yeah, just like, oh, here, here, here. You know, that's, right. you know, like not, like not finding my sunglasses because they're on the top of my head and wandering around looking for them. Mm. And for a while there, I was really scared. Maybe this is a post-fight, you know, brain trauma. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the depression set in pretty hard post-fight. So I was wondering, well, what... You know, and, and seeing doctors and stuff like that, like, you know, I, they were like, you know, maybe you should get an MRI. Maybe you should get your brain checked. But let's also address the depression right now. Once the depression was addressed and I was able to see that there's something else going on here that may not be um, due to getting hit in the head. It may actually be due to me having a chemical thing that makes me just all over the place because I'm in the best school in the world for writing right now. I didn't get in there like without. I, I uh, How do I explain it? The focus is different. I think I just needed to channel it. And I think that I got very scared that I had brain damage, that I was going to never be able to do anything, that I wasn't going to be able to. And, and the truth was, I think that my body chemistry had changed somewhat. And my learning disassociation, my learning, whatever it is that, that made me good at fighting, had to translate into a different world. And so I had to kind of take steps to do that and get into some pretty intense therapy and do things like that in order to understand that, no, my brain is just wired differently. Mm. So I, I, I don't know if it's the creative brain or the obsessive brain or whatever. Um, yeah. it's. Um, I mean, it, I sound like I'm talking bro science here because no, I really not. don't have no, a diagnosis don't. sheet to show you from an actual doctor. Well, not only that, yeah. the, the reality of depression is that a doctor can't really say like, oh, hey, look, you've got herpes. There it is. Right, right. You know what I mean? It's not something like that. It's Depression is some very, very difficult thing to define. And it's, you only know whether or not you have it yourself. They can't like scan you and go, no, oh, Julie, can, you're depressed. Yeah, you can answer a whole bunch of questions right. that they give you, but you can also lie if you know what they're looking for, which is what I did in many depression tests. I would just lie because I didn't want people to think I had depression. Ooh. And it was just like, okay, but I am actually feeling this on this survey. I should right. answer this correctly. Yeah. And I, I, I will say that uh, something that I did, you know, when I look back at my lifetime of choices and the things that I did, I self-medicated with experiences, like trying to have this experience, this experience, this thing, have all this, all this, do this, do this, do you know, all this. And I self-medicated. I had very severe bulimia. And that would calm me down. It would calm While me down. While you were fighting? No, um, early, early days of fighting. It's actually one of the things I really, and I don't talk about it, but I really credit Greg Jackson for this and putting me on a path. Because I, I confess to him, okay, this is a problem that I have. When I first say this is something that I've I've dealt with a little bit with some treatments, but you know I puke my my food up, and he he didn't let me anymore. I don't know how to explain. He didn't let me anymore, but he just he put a lot of care and pressure on me to be a more mentally healthy person by directing that energy, that panicked energy when I would get all worked up and just have to go puke, because I didn't know what else to do with myself. And he helped me direct that energy into the sport. And he gave me tasks to do, and I ended up working for him. But it was just like, I mean, he's, he's a really fucking good dude. 
like really good dude. Yeah, and, he's and, a very good guy. Yeah, and 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 just you know, I I would I honestly credit him for. I think he saved my life to a certain extent because I got pretty bad there for a while. Like, and um, when I moved to Jackson's, it was like sort of that understanding that I'm stepping into a new realm where. I am a professional athlete now. I have to conduct myself a certain way. I have to eat food a certain way. I have to address my body a certain way. I have to, you know, it it, it, it took a burden off of me that made me panic. And I don't know how to explain that, but it gave me purpose maybe to be somebody that somebody else is invested in to understand, okay, he's like, you know, you're my first female MMA fighter that I really want to put work into. So don't get fucking pregnant. Don't do this. Don't puke anymore. Don't do, you know, he's just, he, he put some rules in place for me when I came there. Cause he said he wasn't really on board with him. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Cause it'll get him a lot of shit. He wasn't on board with female MMA. And then, you know, he saw my Corano fight. He liked it. He liked me. And he was just like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And for me, it saved my life because I don't know where I would be without MMA. Um, for, you know, and when it comes to, I guess the bulimia and the, the self sabotage that I was doing to myself, competing in the sport and and finding purpose was really important and just the talks I would have with him about like you know philosophy and this kind of thing because it's, it's hard to find people to talk about some intellectual subjects with sometimes in that sport or in a yeah. gym and so to be able to sit down and break things down and think okay I can use my brain this way this is great and then when I quit fighting and I moved to Kansas I didn't have that bubble anymore I didn't have that that home or that that feeling right. you know and so it was just like I just slid right backwards and I was gaining all this weight and I was, you know, I, I just became Were you very eating poorly. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, you sugar is so addictive when you actually yes. get to eat it again. Like, what do you do? Like it's, it feels so good. Like, yeah. so yeah, I went through a rough time there and then I, I found school and I was like, Oh shit, I can do this. This is where my energy can be. So, well, that's awesome that you found something. I mean, I would really think that diet would have also a pretty significant effect oh, on the way yeah. your brain works. Oh, yeah, of do you, course. Do you monitor that now? Do you take care of yourself now? Um, yes, yes, because I actually, I'm, I mean, I still, I'll drink sugar, like I'll put sugar in a drink or something like that, but I don't I don't care for it as much. My, my tastes have kind of changed over time. I like vegetables. I like meat. I, you know, vegetables and meat were a huge staple when I was fighting, and now when I find myself just being drawn to that anyway, mm -hmm. you know. And but you know, post fighting, it's like it's the orgy of sugar and food, right, the things you, you were, were never allowed to have, and right, you, were and you deprived. Really, yeah, and it's like, well, you weren't your body really wasn't designed to eat this anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so it's gonna affect your brain. Do you just yeah. give yourself like a cheat day or a reward day or something like that? What I don't do is, um, and this could come from a lifetime of Catholicism, like, but uh -oh. I don't. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, but no, I, 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 Can I, of worms. I grew up very Catholic. I'm very not Catholic now. Don't tell my grandma. Um, no, but what, what I don't do is I don't beat myself up. If I eat junk food, fine. Okay, but the next meal is going to be healthy. Like, So you're more concerned with overall health, mental, physical, yeah. the whole thing. And to be obsessive about something is actually probably worse than just having a little sugar. Yes, and, and I guess when it, to be, yeah. Yeah, because then it's self-flagellation, right? right? Then you're just like, ah, oh, fuck, oh, I just, uh, everything's yeah. terrible. Oh, I'm just going to eat this I'm now. just a terrible person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just goes down that spiral, and it's kind of dumb. And I realized that I need something to be obsessive about, and that has actually come through writing, you know, and that sort of thing, and, and, and working towards, like, I'd love to write the great book 
just the book. Well, then do it. About, well, I'm, I'm working on it. I know. I mean, <laughs> I'm it seems on it. like yeah. this style of thinking that you have would lend itself towards something like that. This obsessive style of thinking, like it could really be an, an amazing tool for you. I would hope so. I, yeah. I would hope, and I just, I guess, translating MMA to to people, not just in. Is the that commentary. what you want to write about? I think so. I think so. It's I, when I first came came into, I was just like, no, no, I'm done with MMA. I'm not going to, you know. And then I'm just like, oh, but these are my people. Like even well, what about your just your life experiences itself? I mean, coming from a point of view of someone like you, who's so smart and articulate, I would imagine that your memoirs or what you would be able to describe about your your days competing would be really fascinating and compelling. Yeah, it's it's I've definitely worked on that. Like I've I've written some things to that extent. Um, the stuff that they picked up for Sports Illustrated was really nice. Like that that was nice. That was a, a that was a help. Um, I'd like things to be on a little bit, I guess, a little bit not woo woo like literary level but just something that's um i'd like symbol a little bit more symbolism a little bit more um i don't know when i wrote the piece about it's the piece that got me into iowa it was the piece about cutting weight when i decided to retire Mm. and when i cut weight and i was in australia and i saw this painting and it just changed everything and i was just like wow what was it um it's uh oh it's 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 a picasso painting of this woman with a hat on her head um a, a dutch hat it's um Oh, God. Um, Mademoiselle, um, I cannot remember the name of it. I, I'm drawing a blank right here. Eggs. Think about eggs. Think about eggs, how eggs are prepared. Poached, scrambled. Keep going. Fried. Keep going. <laughs> Hollandaise. Uh, Mademoiselle Hollandaise. Hollandaise, yeah, something to that effect, I believe. Okay. I have the print in my room, but now I just I don't look at the titles of things. I just right. look at the images more than anything. But I saw this painting. Um, and I was in a museum in Australia, and I was cutting weight for my fight. I had all my sweats on, but I was in an art museum, and I saw it, and I just, I felt like it was talking to me all of a sudden. And I was just like... Were you delirious because you were losing weight? See, no, but <laughs> symbolically, I know what you mean. Like, the symbolism there, like, I, I, I was... I, Maybe? I was talking to myself. Yeah, Is that it? that's it. That's the painting. Yeah. And I just looked at that. And, La Belle Hollandaise. Yeah, La Belle Hollandaise. That's it. Not Memosos. <laughs> I suck at names. Um, that's another. I have a very bad memory. Um, but I, you know, I looked at that and I just, I connected with this painting in this weird, weird How so? way. I just saw it and I couldn't stop talking to it in my head. Like, like there's this a person I'm talking to now. Okay. And and it just and I wrote about this. For, it was just like it was just like oh yeah you know what I'm done. And I knew that in that museum, just standing there looking at this painting before my fight. Well, you sure you weren't just looking for a sign to yeah, latch on I your was. thoughts to? Right. Of course I was. Right. And it was just this beautiful image of this woman who's, you know, it doesn't look like a fighter, doesn't look like anything to do with combat. It's just mm-hmm. a naked woman wearing a hat. But all of a sudden, it just, to me, that was what I was looking for. I was looking for that sort of sign. And that's where it became cohesive. Like, that's that moment. And... Uh, I just knew I was done. Hmm, that's fascinating. I think I'd been looking for excuses for a long time right. before that, and I, I think I wanted to, to retire before I fought Jermaine Durand to me. You know, like I, I, I was just so tired, and I was just so my mind just wasn't going that direction. That Do you other see that in other were. fighters? You see that moment where you know that they're just sort of phoning it in, yeah, and they can't figure out how to get off. Yeah, and for me, it was like I would overtrain. Like before the Jermaine fight, I was so overtrained, and I was so tired, and 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 it just like froze. You know, and stuff like that. Also, she hit like a fucking Mack truck. But yeah. you know, I was like, she put me out on my feet in the third round of that fight. Like, she hit me with two right hands, second right hand. I didn't know what was going on. Like, I was. What out. did you think about her fight mm. with Holly? So, I'm 
Always, what did you think about the late hits? I think it was terrible. Horrible, yeah, right? I think it was terrible. I think that should have been called and that should have been point deducted. And I don't mean 100%. that as an insult to Jermaine or anything like that. That's combat minded or whatever, but that's cheating. Yeah, like, it's, it's 100% it's, cheating. And she yeah. rocked her too. Yeah. And, yeah. She rocked Holly with one of those shots. Yeah. And I think it's... Yeah, I think it's something that she saw that she could do, and she I was did very it. disappointed when they didn't, when yeah. the, they denied her protest. Yeah, me too. Of protest, that was a very legitimate. Hundred percent, and that's not something that Holly's ever done before. No, she's not. No, I mean she's, and it's not like she doesn't accept defeat. I mean, she yeah. doesn't accept defeat as I will keep moving forward. But she's, right. she wasn't. She doesn't find excuses. I've known that woman for almost a decade. Yeah. She doesn't look for excuses. She looks for ways to improve, and yeah. So that you know her. Putting a protest in is very legitimate. Very legitimate. Yeah. And Holly Holmes, another one. She's all heart. I yeah. mean, she came back from a deficit in that fight, landed that that oh um, God, question yeah. mark kick Ugh. over the shoulder, and yeah. clanged her. That was beautiful. She's that was she's one of the best question mark kicks I've ever seen landed inside the octagon against a really tricky Muay Thai opponent yeah. who was getting the better of her early on. Mm-hmm. She's a, Holly is. I feel like the world hasn't even seen the best Holly Holm yet. Um, I know that sounds weird, but well, I she's feel thirty-six, like, right? I mean, uh, yeah, thirty-five. I think that there's more to her, though, potential-wise, that that we haven't even seen yet. But we'll see. Like, if that is gonna, I don't know what her plan. I don't talk to her. Isn't that, that much kind of anymore. what we're talking like, about with the Vitor thing, though? That it's almost like your your experience and your your ability and your knowledge gets overwhelmed by Father Time. It's yeah. like Father Time, and they come. There's a cross in the road, and you have to figure out like. How much experience do you have? How much knowledge, and whether or not your body can mm-hmm. actually act on those things anymore? And, and there think, comes a point yeah. where they're just. I, th- I yeah, and I don't know. Uh, I'd say that's pretty early to say about her in her MMA career, but she has had all that boxing and kickboxing experience before this. So yeah. maybe you know. So that's more. Yeah, she has. Like, uh, gosh, she's so inspirational. And that fight that so she lost, that one boxing match where she yeah. got KO'd was so hard to it watch. Was brutal. And and the ref not horrible. Yeah. They should have stopped that fight oh my God. way earlier. Oh my God. I know. And her mentality coming out of that fight, well, I had to be her sparring partner after that fight if that tells you how much brain damage mm. I might have now. But no. Her but her mentality after that fight, not she refused to interact with people or, or have people corner her that would doubt that she could win that fight in the future. Refused. She she it, she's such a champion mind that no, if people thought she would, they, she would take corrections. She would take, you know, this. I've got to sh- switch this, this up. I've got to do this differently. But if you believed that she shouldn't have the rematch, she wouldn't work with you. Wow. Yeah, because she was like, no, I can't have somebody not believing in me. I mean, it was, it, it was incredible. It was very inspirational. It was well, very she was talented. right. Yeah, she, she came back and won the rematch, she did. which is crazy. She did. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. No, she's a warrior, no doubt she about is. that. Yeah. So. We only have a couple more minutes. <laughs> so I've been you, talking so much. I'm you sorry. You said you had a bunch of questions. You still I did. want to throw I, I, some at me because I know you got um, them written down. You know, it was the, I think when we went back to the, and these are, you know, it's a shorthand, but it was, you know, the who were you when you started and who are you now? And I guess what goes with that, and I ask these questions because I've been asking them of a lot of people in this sport or in this industry or people who are, are high level in what they're doing. What, what would you have left behind? Like what? what we, yeah. What? What do you regret? What would you have left behind in becoming who you are now? What could you have changed? And I don't. It's a, it's a hard question to ask because nobody wants to look back and re- oh, I regret this. I regret because we learn from our regrets, right? But if there's yeah. something you could have you could have changed, you could have done differently. Would you have? I think all of my errors have made me a better person. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're bad. You know, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, that's a real cliched thing. You don't. You don't make mistakes, or you, if you do make mistakes, you learn. If you don't make mistakes, you grow and you improve. I mean, like 
it's all good. And what, if you look, it's mm-hmm. it's not what happens; it's how you react to what happens. And, and what think, one mistake do you think like really defined you to make you better? Oh, geez, not one. It's just a bunch of them. I mean, God, there's a million of them. There's nowhere to even start. You know, I mean, you just constantly make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You make mistakes with your friends. You make mistakes with uh, people you're involved with romantically. You make mistakes career-wise. You make mistakes with comedy and art. You're constantly, I mean, it's a constant process of mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're writing new stuff. With right. jiu-jitsu, there's constant mistakes, yeah. you know. I mean, I think testing yourself and constantly seeking improvement and constantly trying to expand upon your creative work and expand upon you know what what you're what you're doing as a martial artist or what you're doing as an athlete or you know improving upon your your conditioning drills and Mm -hmm. trying to advance in yoga get better at that and i just i'm always doing something that Mm -hmm. i'm that i'm failing in Mm -hmm. i mean i think that's a big part of i like doing new things and sucking at them i think that's good too what so in that in that vein i guess of reasoning what do you carry into this like uh, i mean I don't know the exact numbers of your podcast, but it's huge, right? Like, I mean, you get a huge amount of downloads. Um, you're number one or in the top, at least the top five all the time for, you know, whatever. Pot. But so what do you carry into this space with people that you don't want to leave behind? Like, what is it that you think you bring to this? That I don't want to leave behind. Yeah. Hmm. Like that what... you've carried since you were young, since you first started in the entertainment industry or in, in MMA or in jujitsu. What part of Joe do you bring into this space and that you continue to bring that I definitely don't think about that but if there was anything it would be genuine curiosity mm-hmm. I've, I'm genuinely curious about things and I'm trying to make this as entertaining as possible so mm-hmm. I do my best to try to make the conversation flow as and I don't always succeed I fail all the time and that failure makes me try better. I definitely mm-hmm. think I'm better at podcasting now than I was six months ago mm-hmm. and better six months ago than I was a year ago and then I hope I'll be better a year from now mm-hmm. than I am today and that's just just back it fail fail yeah. more fail better right fail yeah. all the time yeah but there's also this isn't in in a weird way it's an audio art form and mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it is but the art of conversation right. is there's a, there's an art there's an interaction to it and you're very good at it which is one of the reasons why you apologize when you accidentally we talk over each other but that's a part of human interaction we talk over each other mm-hmm. we accidentally do or sometimes you have a point that you feel like you have to get in now or to forget it I mean and it's it's a matter of like how to do it the right way and one of the things that I've found from doing podcasts is how bad people are at that. Mm-hmm. It's really frustrating to talk to really uh, self-centered people that just talk over everyone and don't listen to what anybody has to say and aren't genuinely listening. They're just waiting for their turn to talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that is really frustrating. And it's you realize the art of conversation is something that's cultivated. It's something that you, you have to work on. And there, a lot of people just don't. They're not good at it. Mm-hmm. Because you have to, you have to be aware that you're weaving something into a bigger picture, yes. as opposed to yeah, as opposed to just saying what you're saying and then walking out. Yeah, yeah. I think listening is huge. I think you're a very good listener, and I think that that's like that's what I see from the outside that, you, that you're able to do well. And I'd love to emulate you as a as a commentator in that sense, and you as creating this space. I, I'd love to to model a certain amount of myself after that because I think it's wonderful. But um, so I mean, any huge regrets? I mean, you don't have to share them, but any does, does anything keep you up at night? No. 
Mm-hmm. No. I mean, if uh, there's many things in my life that if they were presented in front of me right now, learning that I've done them in the past and fucked up, mm-hmm. I would do it differently. But that's part of being who you are today. Mm-hmm. I think people, that word regret is a very dangerous word mm-hmm. because people far too often define themselves by their past failures right. instead of saying, well, that's not you. Like, you're not that person. You're you right now. And that's what I really, truly believe. I mm-hmm. believe that you are all of your experiences in in life and all of the data that you've acquired and all the revelations and understandings that you've gathered up because of those positive and negative experiences, and that creates who you are at this moment. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting people to me are the people that have been tested, that have gone through trials and tribulations, and it's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why fighters are so interesting, because the emotional roller coaster of a fight camp and then fighting and competing and and not just uh, MMA, but people that do jiu-jitsu and uh, uh, boxers and just people that have done something that's very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. You've tested yourself in a way that very few people have. And so you understand yourself in a much deeper way. Mm-hmm. You understand where that breaking point is. You understand what happens when you break. You understand who the demons are in your mind yeah. that tell you to break. You know, and th- some people never meet those demons and they're there. They're waiting. They're waiting for the call. They're waiting for that fucking button to be pushed mm-hmm. so they can pop up into your brain and wreak havoc. Yeah. And some people just want to fight those demons yeah. so badly they make them up. Sure. Yeah. They make their own demons yeah. up. They create problems. They, mm-hmm. they create stress. And, you know, sometimes they invoke those demons. They, they ask those demons to come in and distract them from all the real issues mm-hmm. that they have in their life and all the things that they actually do need to deal with, all the real work that... The pain of the mundane, the, the pain of the boring discipline work is sometimes so great that people, this, I mean, that's why some fighters wind up fucking off and getting drunk and, and never coming to, to work out and mm-hmm. wind up being in poor shape when the fight comes off. It's not because they didn't know that the fight was coming. It's not because they're a coward. It's because they're, they're letting their demons trip them up. Mm-hmm. I think boredom and that not listening aspect, I think that it's also connected Um no, you, you, yeah, and that leads people down paths where they can't get back from it, and sure. that's unfortunate. That's, uh, yeah, I think when we lament the loss of somebody's potential, it's not always because they were doing the wrong things or they lost the wrong fight, but it's because they never recognized where they could move on from there. Yeah, yeah. and exploring the your personal sovereignty, exploring your ability to truly manage all these very difficult scenarios that present themselves in life is one of the most interesting and fascinating things about studying human beings and to me it's like the exact opposite of the mob mentality when you're mm-hmm. swept away in this group think and you're really not responsible for yourself and you're thinking in this very almost selfish way of giving into this thing it's too easy it's too easy there's so many people around ah, I just go crazy it's like the opposite of like the lone one of the reasons why i never really was into team sports i was like i understand that it's a challenge i understand that it's difficult but there's an intensity of the one-on-one competition that cannot be matched in any other forum whether it's even it's one-on-one playing tennis it's so much more intense than a, a group game of volleyball or basketball or whatever. I, I would say to that, though, given because you are who you are and you've built so many, quote unquote, followers, you've built so many people who listen to your opinion. You are, in a sense, on a team and you are a leader because so many people download your podcast. So many people want to enter this space that you create. So do you feel a responsibility to them to tell them to think for themselves? I hope people just figure that out on their own because mm-hmm. there's no way anybody could think for you. Right, but, right. But I do allow people to think for me in a certain way. Like when I listen to someone, like if I listen to a book on tape, 
um, or I listen to a lecture. What I'm listening to is I'm allowing this person to direct my thoughts with their words. Mm -hmm. They're painting pictures. Mm -hmm. They're explaining facts. They're going over their own personal experiences. And you are in many ways allowing that person to think for you. Mm -hmm. But then when that's over, you think for yourself and you take into account what that person has said and it can enhance your perceptions. Because mm -hmm. if someone's being honest with you, which I think is one of the most important parts of being, of expressing yourself, I would like to know what your real motivations are. I want to know what your real thoughts are. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to pretend. I don't want you to be a politician. I don't want you to just give me some bullshit version of who you are because you think I'm going to like you more mm -hmm. from that. And I think people can tell when someone's doing that. Right. And I think when someone's not doing that, when someone's being genuine, people cling to it and they go, look, maybe he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, but maybe he's being honest about it and I'll find out together. We'll figure it out together mm -hmm. because at least this dude's telling me the truth or mm -hmm. she's telling me the truth or, you know, this group is an honest group. That's what I think we belong for in this life because this life is so filled with dramatic interpretations of reality. and. Right. And so there's so much just bullshit mm -hmm. that it's it's hard to find truth. It is. And we seek truth, I think I think truth is sought in combat. I think there's a lot of people that seek truth in watching MMA. Like when we're talking about that Darren Elkins fight, there's no truer moment in the world. Mm -hmm. And this guy digging deep and I mean it's as raw as it gets. His face is covered in blood. He can't even fucking see. That's a there's a truth in that that's inescapable. You can't dance your way out of it. You can't bullshit your way out of it. Spotlights and glitter and mm -hmm. fucking hype music. That's there's none of that. It's 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 down to this this inescapable reality and I think when people are confronted with all the trials and tribulations of life and there's so much confusion and we seek inspiration in so many different avenues and we seek leadership and we seek mentorship and we seek so, like this this hope hopefully this light out there that guides us in some sort of a way and one of the only ways that we can really truly trust that light is if we know it's coming from a person that is committed to the path of honesty right Right. So what are your tools for discernment in that? Just don't bullshit myself. Yeah. It's really... Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Manipulation is so easy to fall into, but it's also so easy to to just resent everybody about them, too. Like, yeah. I teach rhetoric. So, like, we, we consider a text and we're just like, okay, who's the speaker? What is the text? What is, you know, what is the message in the text? Like, what are they trying to say? And then what is this huge, like, mythos surrounding all of this? Right. And what's, what are they trying to do here? And it's, it's so interesting to see kids' minds change about, like, oh, I don't actually have to believe this because this is what I've been assigned. Mm, yeah. Or I do have to think a certain way. Or I have to consider the source. I've, and it gets, it's kind of a rabbit hole sometimes. Yes. You know? That's where, in my mind, like the truest religion to me, like or whatever you want to call religion, is, is science. I just think science is the the um, the scientific method is like based on so much philosophy, so much, and it's trying to fail all the time. Like mm -hmm. that's what I say is like repeatable results. If you can't get repeatable like results, like blind results on something, then that's what you're always trying to do, and you're always failing. But you know, I come from a family scientists, so of course, like that's. It, yeah. it, you know, for me, it's just, it's what I love more than anything is to, to hear them talk about how to find truth. And then truth is also different from fact. And so when you go down, okay, is it truth or is it fact or is it opinion? Like, what's going on here? It gets really um, finding tools for discernment. That's really, that becomes really tricky. And I think that's where a hive mind comes from, right? You know, like people not trying to grab those tools, not sure. trying to assess their sure. own motivations for latching on to thinking that this is yeah. right. They just want their team to win. And it's also absorbing information and sort of formulating your own viewpoint. It takes time. Mm -hmm. it takes a long time. And who you are today 
is going to be different than who you are 10 years from now. And that's, that's something that you have to kind of embrace. And, you know, be, be, it's, it's hard to, to think it in the moment, but be happy for those uncomfortable moments. Yeah. Because those uncomfortable moments are, you learn from them. Yeah, you have to be wrong. You have to seek being yeah. wrong as yeah. much as possible, right? And you have to you see things do. that maybe change the way you look at things and, and experience things that mm-hmm. change your, your boundaries, change your perceptions. It's one of the things I worry the most for, I think, as a country for us that we get so comfortable that oh we're soft as fuck and you know and, and i don't even i don't even mean soft as in like we're a, puppy a, shit in a plastic bag well we just the the because i don't know what it is about and it's it's again i, I do believe what you said about individualism and, and doing your own thing and striking you know forging your own path and stuff like that but our inability somehow to um to commit ourselves to learning yeah, but it's not everybody. A lot no, of people are. You're committed to learning. I'm committed to learning. But There's I, a lot of people listening to this yeah. that are committed to learning. Yeah, I hope so. Like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm banking on that because I actually believe in people. Like I believe that people are good. I believe and, you believe yeah. that. <laughs> I think the group think thing is is real, and what you're talking about is real. But I also think that when when you're judging 350 million people it's impossible to generalize right when you say as a country we're soft we're getting our shit yeah we're soft we're right a lot of us are if you look overall if you looked at the pie chart of soft people like oh fuck look how soft we are through the pie part of pie chart of ignorant people yo look how ignorant we are but in that pie chart in defining people in that sort of a broad generalization mm-hmm. You, you lose the beauty of individuality. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that's in, unique about us is that we have the ability in this country to, to seek out all sorts of different paths, mm-hmm. to be who you would choose to be, to follow whatever um, occupation or whatever path of interest that you, mm-hmm. you choose to follow. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing thing. And it is a beautiful thing. I don't think those opportunities are available to everybody in a lot of senses. And and that's just through my own experience of becoming a fighter and having to struggle to be a female fighter. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes me think of I'm actually privileged to have been able to make that decision and you know the the female fighters after me I think benefit from me making that decision and from other fighters like me making that decision because sure. it's moved on. But I do think that when we look at society and we talk about I don't know being soft or not being soft, it sometimes people just they can't pull themselves up from their bootstraps if they don't know where the fuck their boots are or where it's they true. find them. Well, like, and I do think there's so many, there's so much divisiveness, and I think that's what leads to. And I'm, I'm a fucking perpetuator of that. Like when I go off on, you know, this fucking MAGA guys and this and that, you know, I, I go nuts sometimes. I, I fall into that anger, and I wish I didn't. But so it, then don't. Well, that, that's that's what. But the you ther- like it. That's though. what therapy's for, right? <laughs> I like a good fight. I do. I like a good fight. I do. Well, I would say to you as a friend that I think you'd probably be better off expressing that aggressive energy in some sort of another outlet. I believe you're and absolutely avoiding correct. avoiding <laughs> interacting with strangers because another thing about some of those people that you're interacting with are fucking losers. And they will lock onto you and they find out that you are a source of entertainment where they could press your buttons right. and make you dance. And they'll they'll keep doing it. And that's what trolling is all about. It, it, it is um, a phenomenal art form, this trolling like, <laughs> the, like that, that they've taken. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, the best thing I've ever discovered is my mute button, not even blocking people, but just muting people. Uh. And also, I mean, actually, the best thing I've discovered is that, like, I have to take my phone and physically put it away from me and then I can write and I get into right. that zone and it feels wonderful. That's and it's just very like important. Putting the phone away and just putting it down, disconnecting. But you don't want to be. I want to connect with people. I love that. Twitter has done. It's made great friendships for me. Yeah, for sure. Well, one of the beautiful things about doing podcasts, one of the things it's taught me 
me is that I don't ever have three hour conversations with people outside of podcasting. Mm-hmm. Like you and I got deeper and got to know each other better in this conversation than we would if we knew each other, passing each other at the UFC for a decade. Mm-hmm. Have, has it been three hours? Yes. Holy shit. I'm three sorry. Hours. I had no idea. No, it's, that's what we usually do. <laughs> I had no idea. No, it was it's that long. A, time flies. I figure you always have other guests and, you know. No, <laughs> okay. three hours. You and I just did three hours. Oh. But but we, whenever in life do you get to sit across from someone, just stare them in the eyes mm-hmm. across the table like you and I have done for three hours and just go deep? Well, and it's a space you've created, right? Like you've built this. You're, in, bi- you're big on that word space. I am. I creating don't know what that, Creating, I know, It's always right? writing shit. It's, I, it's so weird. It's like I was reading all this Foucault and this heterotopia stuff and I'm just like, this is really cool because I see this when we read and I see this, I listen to so many audiobooks and so many podcasts and I'm just like, I'm finding weird spaces in my brain to be connected yeah. to people who don't even know who the fuck I am. But I feel close to them. Yeah, in that it's sense, weird. yeah, that's exactly what it is. In mm-hmm. that sense, yeah. 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 I, 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 I should probably stop talking but i forgot <laughs> i totally forgot to plug in victor i was just like because no, i was gonna didn't. just i was gonna email all these no, questions listen. to you anyway so i could talk to you but i love actually talking to you in person because i feel like i haven't had the opportunity to actually know you and um you know except for when i listen to you <laughs> like but that's a different yeah 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 it's weird mm-hmm. but life's weird life is weird it's weird as fuck it's so fucking weird <laughs> <laughs> It is. Like, it is. What is this all Let, about? <laughs> I think it's good for people to hear that it's weird for other people too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good for me to hear that it's weird for you, and it's good for other people to hear that it's weird for me. Yeah. And it's fucking weird. Yeah. You know, and it, you, but you could be nice. Yeah. You could be nice through this weirdness. You could be nice, and you can actually yeah. you can connect to people. And like, if it is like the Appalachian Trail, and we're just putting one foot in front of the other, at least it's a damn. Deep I don't view. think the people that finish that yeah. trail think that. I don't I think, think they do. I think the people, think the people who people fail, who quit, yeah. they decide it's yeah. just one foot in front of the other. Yeah. I want to stay at the fucking Red Roof Inn tonight. Yeah, exactly. You know? right. oh. Julie, thank you very much. Thank you. Really Joe. appreciate you coming on here. It was thank fun. You for I really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> All right, folks, we'll be back next week. See ya. Mwah. <laughs>